This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. This podcast is sponsored by viewers like you on Patreon through PayPal donations with YouTube memberships and Twitch subscriptions. Here's our newest supporters. All right, folks. So this week we have Guy Kerwick, Q the Funky Homo Sapien, Rova T, Tessa Cesario, Thomas I. Osaze, and Valera Windsor. Thank you all so much. I realized that I didn't include Paul Vega in this list. So next week I will thank you at the start of the episode and also put you in all of our outros. I don't know how I missed that, but thank you all so much to all of our newest supporters. Really appreciate it. To support the show, go to patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member by clicking the join button underneath any one of our videos on YouTube. Members get early access to most videos and get to participate in monthly Zoom hangouts with Mike. Coming up, here's the biggest stories we talked about this week on The Humanist Report. We'll talk about the aftermath of the bipartisan infrastructure vote. Josh Hawley wants liberals to stop attacking masculinity. Tulsi Gabbard scolds Cori Bush on Fox News because she dared to criticize Joe Manchin, who is a child of God, I'll have you know. Conservatives target Big Bird. Dennis Prager plays the victim. Dave Rubin debunks climate change. Abby Martin confronts Nancy Pelosi. Progressives want accountability when it comes to Byron Brown. The DCCC can't quit Trump. And Jason Call is running for Congress once again. We'll talk to him about his campaign and why this time things might turn out a little bit different. Enjoy the show. Well, by now I'm sure that you've heard, but the House voted on the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill before the Senate voted for reconciliation, which means that Build Back Better is probably dead. And you might think that that's just a little bit too presumptuous because we don't know and the president is still promising a vote on it. But I think that the writing is on the wall. Corporate Democrats like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, they don't care about Build Back Better. They don't care about the budget reconciliation bill. All they wanted was their corporate toll road bill. That's what their donors wanted. There's a reason why Republicans supported it as well. And so you gave them exactly what they wanted if you are a progressive in the House of Representatives. It was really important that these bills get linked together. Decoupling them was the worst thing ever. I mean, it shouldn't ever have been passed as two separate bills. But the second you waver and you say, all right, I'll vote on one without the other, that's when you lose all leverage. So if Build Back Better even passes at this point, which we don't know, then uh, Manchin can do anything he wants to it. Butcher it even further, and there's nothing you can do because you gave him what he wanted. Now, thankfully, not all progressives in the House caved. There were six individuals who voted against it. All of them are members of specifically the squad, and that includes Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Jamal Bowman, Cori Bush, Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley. They all voted no. But unfortunately, there weren't enough no votes to sink bipartisan infrastructure because other progressives supported it. All other progressives supported it, including Ro Khanna, Pramila Jayapal, Marie Newman, Mark Pocan, Katie Porter, and others. So now what I say is good luck getting what you want in Build Back Better because it's not looking great right now. Now, Joe Biden is promising a vote on Build Back Better before Thanksgiving. Uh, and now, uh, apparently, progressives are confident, the progressive leadership, they're confident that this is all going to happen because, uh, I kid you not, the moderate corporate democrats in the house looked her in the eye and they sweared they're going to support it 
Now, the problem is that Biden's entire uh, timeline of voting on this before Thanksgiving is shaky because there's a little bit of a caveat, right? So, the moderate Democrats, or I shouldn't call them moderates, they're, they're corporate right-wing Democrats. They don't really have an ideology other than to deliver for their donors, but the corporate Democrats who supposedly looked Pramila Jayapal and other progressives in the eye and swear to support Build Back Better, um, they are waiting on a budget analysis to be conducted. Now, whether or not that will be finished before Thanksgiving, it looks really unlikely, but there's an out for them, even with their support. If the budget analysis yields results that they don't like, then they can they cannot vote for it. But apparently this is a win. So let me read to you what CPC leader Pramila Jayapal said she got from them. As Politico reports, in a sign of how much trust has eroded, Congressional Progressive Caucus leader Pramila Jayapal asked each of the centrists who signed the statement to look her in the eye as they committed both publicly and privately to vote for the broader spending deal after they've seen cost estimates, according to multiple Democrats familiar with the exchange. So I have to laugh because this is ridiculous. They don't care. Their word is shit. They already broke their promise to you. They said they want to support both bills at the same time. This is what Biden said. He said, I'm not going to sign one without the other. And he's going to be signing one very soon without the other. So I just feel like you have to know that their word is shit, right? But yet, Pramila Jayapal thinks that this is, this is a good thing. Well, in their promise that they're making to you, I'm going to vote for it depending on the outcome of the independent budget analysis, they're already giving themselves an out. So when they inevitably look you in the eye again and they tell you to go fuck yourself, what are you going to do? You can't threaten to torpedo the bill that they wanted because you already voted for that. So what are you going to do? Sadly declare that they promised you and this is malarkey. I mean, they don't, they don't care. But yet, Pramila Jayapal, after this was passed, uh, claimed that they didn't cave after they literally just caved and went back on what they said they weren't going to do. Um, and and she, she, again, assured us that what they promised her by looking her in the eye, that was really, that, that meant something. We feel really proud of what we were able to get and how far we've come in just four weeks because we held the line over and over again. We also made the determination that um, the country needs to continue to move forward. And so we feel like we got the best of all worlds. We got a commitment on um, this vote, which, and, and every single one of those individuals looked us in the eyes and said they are voting for it. And so, um, you know, look, we gotta, we gotta, we, we gotta move things forward. Look. From a policy perspective, Pramila Jayapal is one of the best legislators. She sponsored the Medicare for All Act, which is phenomenal legislation. That being said, under her leadership, something like that would never, ever have a chance of passing because she very clearly doesn't know how to play hardball. I mean, to say, oh, well, you know, each of those corporate Democrats looked us in the eyes and we got the best of both worlds. I mean, it's just, it, it comes off as extremely naive to me, and I don't think that progressives are ever going to have much leverage so long as she's the leader. But look, I could be proven wrong, and if she disproves me and Build Back Better gets passed and it doesn't get butchered further, great. I want to be proven wrong here, but I know how politics works. I know how sleazy and trifling these 
fucking corporate Democrats are and the fact that she doesn't when she's inside. She knows how the sausage is made. It really makes me feel hopeless. Now, she may have gotten this pinky promise because each corporate democrat looked her and every progressive in the eye and they said we're gonna vote for this so long as the budget analysis doesn't make us upset but uh there's nothing that she got from joe manchin and kirsten cinema they can still say you know what that 550 billion dollar investment into climate uh cut it in half cut it in more than half what are you gonna do you you can't say anything so what's to stop them from butchering it even more because your corporate democrat colleagues in the house might be making you this promise and you might trust them but what's to stop corporate democrats in the senate from tanking everything because you voted for the bill that they wanted you to vote for well uh in an interview with jen uger of tyt ro Khanna answered this question before caving and voting for this bill and as you're going to see he admits there's not really anything that's going to stop Manchin from uh, from butchering it. But we do have something that's really great. It's gold uh, as a currency in D.C. And that is a promise to the president. We think we're not sure, but we think the, this is an important news point in the question here, because you're saying that Biden has some sort of implicit promise from Manchin and presumably cinema that they're going to right. vote for this version of the bill with one point seven five. The framework, whatever that means. Um, and and Manchin is saying, no, I'm not giving any promises. So what's actually happening here? Does Biden have Manchin well, and Cinema's promise or doesn't he? I think publicly Manchin doesn't want to uh, make those commitments. But our belief is that the president has a private uh, a commitment from 50 senators uh, that he could pass this and that he didn't come to us for many, many months. And he only came to the progressives once he had that commitment. I personally believe that he will pass the Build Back Better agenda, that Manchin ultimately will be a yes vote. But I acknowledge that they're, the most popular provision in this was the Bernie Sanders increase uh, dental, vision, hearing. And you know, dental and, and vision are out. So I, I grant you that the bill has lost popular provisions that it should have. It should have a much more robust uh, prescription drug negotiation. It should tax the, the, the billionaires and the uh, corporations. It's not raising corporate tax rates because of uh, Senator Sinema. So I'm not, I'm not here to sort of sugarcoat things. What I'm saying is that we have a moderate president. We didn't win with Bernie Sanders or, or, or Elizabeth Warren. In light of that, He's adopted a lot of progressive policies like childcare, universal preschool, and most importantly, climate. And this is significant progress in light of the circumstances. Yeah, no. And that's where the disagreement is. Yeah, among, no. Not just us, but, but amongst people who have been critical of the of the caucus. So Representative Connor, we're not even talking about the disagreement. I, I think that what remains of the bill is, I think the negotiations went terribly. I agree. So basically what progressives got is a lot of promises by people who are liars, who represent nobody but their corporate donors. And now they gave away their leverage. There is nothing stopping Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema from completely destroying and dismantling what is left of Build Back Better. And the fact that we're still being told that this is a victory for progressives and that we got the best of all worlds it's it's delusional. So I am incredibly disappointed in the progressives who caved, but for the progressives who stood their ground and did not cave, like AOC, they explain how 
now this is kind of an issue because if we pass the bipartisan infrastructure which we did and that's signed into law but we don't get build back better then we're doing more harm than good overall so she explains this very eloquently in a thread on the issue of climate think of the bipartisan infrastructure as a lock and build back better as the key locks only open with keys biff climate benefits only unlock with bbb's provisions if we message biff as good on climate alone when it's not we stop the pressure for bbb's passage do not let this happen the desire to pass both together isn't the unnuanced stance some pundits think it is. Biff has a lot of bad stuff in it. That's how he got GOP votes. It also has a lot of good stuff in it. What you're hearing on TV. Passing BBB unlocks Biff's climate goals, so the good prevails. If BBB isn't delivered with Biff's oil and gas locked in, we're in trouble. That is what makes it a huge gamble. So again, we need pressure to deliver the promise on BBB. For anyone middle-aged and younger, let's hope this ain't Kyoto all over again again because we're going to live with the outcome so she raises a really important point if biff passes but bbb fails ultimately we're worse than we were before and by passing the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill, bill which is really just the corporate toll road bill well i mean all the pressure is gone what pressure what urgency is there to pass bbb because you just got a major win and you could sell this as a win if you're a corporate Democrat. And really, this uh, momentum is is gone for BBB because you're claiming it's a win. And there's an example as to how uh, Democrats are already doing this. So Biden uh, claimed on Twitter that uh, what this would do, what the bipartisan infrastructure bill would do, is it would allow every kid in this country to be able to turn on the tap and drink clean water. But AOC explains how this is factually incorrect. This bill is being oversold. She writes, the cost to replace every lead pipe in the United States is 45 to 60 billion. Biff only gives 15 billion. Without BBB, many communities historically denied clean water will continue to be denied. Build Back Better has led money for disadvantaged communities. We must keep pushing for Build Back Better. It's not just that we made these promises before. Look at how the infrastructure bill is being messaged now. I respect the president and the legit feat he just accomplished, but this is simply wrong. We did not fund the replacement of every child's pipe and we shouldn't tell people we did but they're doing it and now joe manchin can say look we just spent uh 1.5 trillion on infrastructure so why should we spend another 1.75 trillion on build back better it's just because progressives caved now they have no say they're completely legislatively irrelevant their input is not valued they caved six didn't though those members of the squad should be commended. But the other members, like Pramila Jayapal and Ro Khanna, who are part of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, who did cave, they need to reevaluate whether or not they're actually good at fighting for their priorities. Because you might support the correct policies, but strategically, if you're doing everything that is kind of working against you, then you need to reevaluate how you fight for things. Because what we saw overall from the Congressional Progressive Caucus was strength at first, but ultimately, they they caved and the corporate wing of the democratic party banked on them caving and they were right to make that guess they were right to assume that they were going to cave because they did so i am uh, going to be watching closely to see what happens but i would not be surprised if build back better is not passed before thanksgiving and i wouldn't be surprised if it was watered down even further and mansion and cinema still don't support it this uh is is bad progressives look weak but the six individuals 
who are imperfect. They did the right thing now, and those members of the squad should be commended for that. What's a man to you? Paint a picture. What's a man? Well, a man is a father, a man is a husband, a man is somebody who takes responsibility. As conservatives, we've got to call men back to responsibility. We've got to say that spending your time not working, and we have more and more men who are not working, spending your time on video games, spending your time watching porn online while doing nothing is not good for you, your family, or this country. So a viewer's watching this and they're thinking, really, what the liberals are doing are going to push me to watch Pornhub more or play Donkey Kong more? Do you mean that literally? Well, what I mean literally is that I think the liberal attack, the left-wing attack on manhood says to men, you're part of the problem. It says that your, your masculinity is inherently problematic. It's inherently oppressive. That was Senator Josh Hawley trying to explain to an Axios reporter while keeping a straight face that the attacks we're seeing on masculinity is leading to more and more men playing video games and watching pornography. Now, being the bastion of masculinity that he is, this pencil neck knows how important masculinity is for men. I mean, look at him. Look at this face. Does this not scream masculinity? Beta. Is this not a Chad? This is a very masculine man here, okay? So he knows. So lately, he's been on a tirade against these attacks on masculinity. What are the attacks in particular? Well, he doesn't necessarily say, but last week, he kind of said the same thing as he told this Axios reporter, that more men are going to result in, to, uh, you know, watching porn and playing video games if these attacks on masculinity continue. Can we be surprised that after years of being told that they are the problem, that their manhood is the problem, more and more men are withdrawing into the enclave of idleness and pornography and video games? I found the comment by one young man to a Wall Street Journal reporter particularly evocative and particularly heartbreaking. He said, I'm sort of waiting for a light to come on so I can figure out what to do next. Oh, I'm sure it's definitely because his masculinity is being attacked. Definitely. That's 100% what it is. Now, first of all, I just want to ask him who's saying this and what are they saying in particular that is leading to men feeling, I guess, embarrassed by their own masculinity because that's not what I've seen personally, but notice how there's no specificity in whatever case he's trying to make. It's just not very compelling. He's making it up. It's almost incoherent. Like, I don't know what he's trying to say. Second of all, sure, I think that more and more people are resorting to video games, which is not inherently bad. I think more people are watching porn, but is it really because they feel as if their masculinity is being attacked or is it because life fucking sucks because of the late stage capitalist hellscape that people like you help to build? I mean, people are working longer hours for lower wages, and maybe for them, video games is their only escape. Is that so bad? Is that really a bad thing? I mean, we shouldn't have to find escapes. Life itself should be good enough. We should have a government living in the richest country on the planet that actually provides for us so we don't feel inclined to find escapes. But nevertheless, you know, he's not blaming the actual causal mechanisms here. He's not blaming the institutions. He's not blaming capitalism. He's blaming attacks on masculinity. And notice how there's this implication that anyone who plays video games, well, I mean, that's just inherently bad. You know, if you watch porn, you're a bad person. 
But that's not actually the case. The Association for Psychological Science actually found that playing video games boosts visual motor skills. And on top of that, a study published in Psychological Medicine found that boys that play video games are actually at a lower risk of experiencing depression. That's a good thing. And contrary to popular belief, a meta-analysis of 28 studies dating back to 2008 found that video games don't actually make players more violent. Video games and porn, these are things that are fine, in moderation, of course. I mean, you don't want to become so addicted to something that it ruins your life, so perhaps he's speaking about the addiction of video games. But video games overall, they're a net benefit to people overall who play them. I think that making young men less susceptible to be depressed, that's a really good thing. But yet he's making it seem as if it's it's a bad thing, when that, that doesn't make sense. But look, none of this matters, right? None of this matters, because Josh Hawley is just trying to use this issue to distract people from the fact that as a so-called populist, he self-identifies as a right-wing populist, but yet he offers no solutions, no benefits to people, no economic prescriptions for what we should do. He has nothing. So he has to fabricate issues to make it seem as if he knows the underlying issues in society. That's why you're so miserable, and people are miserable. But it's because, you know... Um, masculinity it's because you're playing too many video games no actually it's the system which you're helping to perpetuate he would never actually challenge the status quo in any meaningful way he wouldn't use his power as a u.s senator to do anything to benefit the lives of people so what does he do he chooses to scapegoat societal issues on irrelevant things like attacks on masculinity or immigrants when in actuality it's the late stage capitalist status quo that he supports we're living in the dystopia that right-wing capitalists want this is your society right this is the free market hellscape that you've created and rather than celebrating they're acknowledging rightly so that things are bad and people are miserable but yet they won't blame the system that created this mess, that created all of this misery and depression and poverty. They, they refuse to acknowledge it. So what do they do? They make things up. It's attacks on masculinity. It's critical race theory. It's uh, political correctness. It's wokeness. It's cat in the hat. It's uh, vaccine mandates. They, they create all of these issues to distract you from the hell that they've basically created for all of us it's just truly um on brand for modern day republicans who have no substance all they have is culture war nonsense like this and uh you know it shows unless they actually put forward any meaningful solutions that would materially benefit people's lives they're going to continue to resort to fake issues that they fabricate like this masculinity is under attack video games are bad it's just truly um it's predictable what the hell are we going to do without men you look around the city here you see all these buildings go up these men they're doing impossible things they're under the streets and that that's not toxic masculinity that appalling phrase it's what keeps the world going round and if we had any sense we'd understand that instead of doing everything at every possible moment to label what we have in the West as oppressive and patriarchal and, and, and fundamentally predicated on power of all the insane propositions. All right, so I'm not sure how many of you saw this, but last week, after Terry McAuliffe was defeated by Glenn Youngkin in Virginia's gubernatorial race, Tulsi Gabbard, a Democrat, 
took to Twitter to talk about how excited she was that Glenn Youngkin, the Republican, had won. She wrote this, McAuliffe's loss is a victory for all Americans. Why? Because it was a resounding rejection of efforts to divide us by race, the stripping of parental rights, and arrogant deaf leaders. This benefits us all. Now what she's referring to is, of course, CRT, critical race theory. And she thinks it's divisive and it shouldn't be taught in schools. Well, I've got great news for you, Tulsi. It's not being taught in schools. CRT is a non-issue manufactured by a Republican operative in order to win over voters by exploiting white grievance. It's electoral strategy that she's falling for, hook, line, and sinker. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take the word of Christopher Rufo who's the operative who made this a mainstream issue, admitting in March that, yeah, we're going to make this the go-to issue and all of the culture war issues, we're going to put it under the brand of critical race theory. He said, we have successfully frozen their brand critical race theory into the public conversation and are steadily driving up negative perceptions. We will eventually turn it toxic as we put all of the various cultural insanities under that broad category. Now, she went on Fox News to further discuss why she was happy that the Republican won. And essentially, the host is going to bring up a criticism in particular of Joe Manchin made by Cori Bush. Now, the reason why he's citing this particular criticism is because it's something that Tulsi seemingly is against since she made this tweet. So, Cori Bush is going to say that Joe Manchin, his lack of support for BBB, Build Back Better, is anti-black. And so, since Tulsi Gabbard is presumably going to view this as the divisiveness that she supposedly hates because it's race baiting it's unnecessarily invoking race when that's not necessary um you know she she should just like she should be able to um swat this aside he's kind of teeing up an easy way for her to make her pitch but she's gonna take this in a really weird direction and her criticism of cory bush is a wee bit stupid <laughs> So, I don't even know how to set this up. Let's just watch. I'd love your response. It's such an important thing for everyone to see that this is the way some Democrats speak. This is Cory Bush, okay, Representative Cory Bush, speaking about a disagreement with Joe Manchin, her colleague, um, on the spending bill. This is how she put it. Joe Manchin's opposition to the Build Back Better Act is anti-black, anti-child, anti-woman, and anti-immigrant. I saw that and I thought, honestly, like, you can have legitimate disagreements over policy. You can, yes. and, and so I, I want everyone to understand that what you're talking about is not some kumbaya, everyone's just get along and we don't disagree. Of course we disagree. Politics is about disagreement and, and who's got the best plan and so on. But you don't have to do it like that to call someone who you disagree, anti-black, anti woman I just couldn't believe that. It really just shows, again, that this is a symptom of uh, a deeper, um, a lack of a spiritual foundation, Steve, where if, if you're not able to see someone, regardless of party politics, regardless of your position, whether you agree or disagree, if you're not able to see another person as a child of God, as someone that you can respect at that fundamental level, as a, as a fellow American, then this is where we see all of this darkness uh, coming from. And, and so it's no wonder, as you were talking about the results in Virginia, uh, that people chose to respond positively towards that message of hope and optimism for our future, that message of coming together, that message of care and respect for all people. Uh, and, and this is, again, this is where, this is where I find hope uh, for our future. Uh, if we go back to those fundamental yes. values and principles of who we really are, uh, then this is, this is how we can come together.
What a lovely platitude. Just beautiful words there. Love it. Now, for the record, um, I think that Cory Bush's criticism of Joe Manchin is not very persuasive. I don't doubt that Joe Manchin is anti-black, but he's not refusing to support Build Back Better specifically because he's anti-black. He's refusing to support Build Back Better because he's corrupt. He's taken millions of dollars from fossil fuel donors, and Cory Bush pointing that out which is objectively true, I think would be a lot more persuasive to people because if you say that he's anti-black, he doesn't give a shit. But if you actually call out his donors, that's when you really shine a light on what his motivations are. So I think that there is a substantive critique to make of Cory Bush's criticism of Joe Manchin. Having said that, though, I think any and all criticisms of Joe Manchin are good because fuck Joe Manchin. But Tulsi Gabbard doesn't criticize the substance of Cory Bush's statement there. Here's why she's mad about what Cory Bush said about Joe Manchin. Uh, specifically, she doesn't like it because it speaks to a lack of a spiritual foundation. What? Uh, because if you're not able to see someone, in this instance, Joe Manchin, quote, as a child of God, as someone that you can respect at that fundamental level, as a fellow American, then this is where we see all of this darkness coming from. Okay, this is, one, incoherent, and two, deeply stupid. I don't believe in the religious dogma that you're peddling, so, we're trying to talk about what's happening in the real world, not in the metaphysical or spiritual realm. So, none of this means anything to me. And if we're actually going to take her seriously here, why is it that it's Cori Bush who lacks the spiritual foundation and not Joe Manchin? Why isn't the darkness emanating from him? who's denying his constituents' policies that they desperately need to survive? Why isn't he the one that isn't seeing that they're children of God? It's just, it's so stupid no matter how you spin this. Like, what she's saying here, it's very clearly a shameless attempt to pander to evangelicals, and it's just, it's so embarrassing because she sounds silly. And this whole grift that she's doing where she's brought onto right-wing programs as the token Democrat isn't really persuasive if you literally just say the same things that Republicans say and you don't change anything. And if you look at the YouTube uh, video where the segment was posted, it talks about how Tulsi addresses the far left. Now, I don't know that that's her words, but I mean, she's being brought on to attack the far left. And what does she do? She sounds like fucking Franklin Graham as she criticizes Cori Bush. It's just, it's truly stupid. And the policies that Cori Bush is fighting for, these are things that she pretended to at least support at one point in time. But all of a sudden, since... She is angry that Joe Manchin won't support these policies, she being Cori Bush. Tulsi Gabbard is saying, mm, you should see him as a child of God. Okay, well, how about this? No, fuck Joe Manchin. He's not a child of God. I'm sure that if God were real, he would reject Joe Manchin and send him straight to hell because he's a piece of shit who is literally helping to destroy our only habitable planet. Also, his fossil fuel donors can make more money. That's not a child of God. That's a child of fucking Satan or whatever the fuck you want to believe. So it's it's just, it's truly nonsensical. And she adds, it's no wonder since you were talking about the results in Virginia that people chose to respond positively towards that message of hope and optimism for our future. Yes, because Glenn Youngkin essentially ran a campaign that in a nutshell uh, was CRT bad. 
And to her, she saw that and she thought, wow, this is so inspirational. This gives me so much optimism for the future. What about CRT bad is good? Like what inspirational message does that even have? Like, I'm trying to be somewhat charitable here, but that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't even make any sense. CRT is about banning basically any history that portrays America in a negative light in schools. Most people don't see CRT until they're in law school or graduate school, as was the case with me. So I don't know if they're trying to conflate history lessons with CRT. Either way, it doesn't matter because this isn't a real issue. It's not a real issue. It's a fake issue. It's a substance-free issue. But that's great for Tulsi Gabbard, who is not a very substantive politician or political commentator now. But either way, I mean, what she's doing here in pandering to evangelicals and suggesting that Cori Bush, of all people, even if you disagree with her criticism, is uh, lacking a spiritual foundation. Well, as I see it, Cori Bush hasn't sold her soul in order to make money. Joe Manchin has. He sold out to the fossil fuel industry. Tulsi Gabbard sold out in order to make money by posting on Rumble, a right-wing website, bankrolled by billionaires. But apparently it's others who lack spiritual foundation. Mm, sounds like that's projection. It seems like if anyone lacks spiritual foundation, it's you, Tulsi Gabbard. But that doesn't actually even matter because spirits aren't real and you just sound like a stupid person. So, yeah. Last week, we got some pretty encouraging news as it relates to the COVID-19 vaccine. The CDC is now recommending that children ages 5 to 11 can be vaccinated with the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Now, this is something that I think that sane, rational, science-trusting, modern medicine advocates have no issue with. It's good news. Children previously didn't have any form of protection aside from masks, and now they can get the vaccine. This is really good. But instead, anti-vaxxers are turning this into a bad thing because I guess this is some form of control and they're trying to microchip your children. I can't even keep up with the conspiracies. But overall, if you trust modern medicine, which we all rely on to survive, then this is good news. But of course, you know, um, there's going to be people in society who are against this. They're against vaccines, generally speaking, and they're always going to move the goalposts. At first, masks and lockdowns were bad. Then vaccines were bad. Then vaccine mandates were bad. Then vaccines for kids are bad. There's always going to be something. People are just pro-plague and we have to accept that as a society. But that doesn't mean that we can't make fun of them. And that's what we're going to do. So CNN brought on Big Bird to educate children about vaccines. Now, I don't think many children are watching CNN, at least I hope not. But, you know, this is something for the parents to show to the kids, and it's cringeworthy, but let me just show you what I'm talking about, and then I think that just by watching a little bit of this, you'll see why right-wingers and anti-vaxxers were so outraged. Hey, Erica. Hey, Big Bird. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Hello there. Oh, and, um, oh, oh, hey, everybody. Oh, hi, Granny Bird. Oh, my goodness. Is that Dr. Sanjay and Erica? Oh, it's so great to see you. Oh, now, go ahead and ask your question, Granny. Oh, okay, Granny Bird. Mm -hmm. um, uh, all right, uh, my question is, uh, my Granny Bird said that I might get the vaccine, and, well, uh, what is a vaccine? Well, that is a good place to start, right? Um, think about it like this, Big Bird. Your body has a lot of these teeny tiny helpers that are there to protect you. What the vaccine does is train those helpers to fight the virus. That way, if you ever get COVID germs, your body knows just what to do to, to beat it, and that can help you from getting sick. 
You know, you've been getting all kinds of vaccines since you were a little bird, probably. So you get the point. People were apoplectic over this fucking segment. I swear, this has been the main thing that many conservatives have been talking about now for days. And they're seeing it as some new thing in society where it's like, wow, you're taking these beloved figures of children and you're turning them into propaganda tools. Except this isn't the first time that Sesame Street has actually educated children about vaccines. They've done this in the past. And also, it's not the first time that these characters have been used for pro for propaganda purposes. So when I was a child, they used one of my favorite cartoons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, to sell uh, anti-drug propaganda to children. Case in point. Hey, Joey, I got some stuff you just gotta try. What is it? Pot. You know, marijuana. Oh, well, I don't know. One chicken. Joey's in a jam. What should he do? Okay. Uh, Get a pizza. Excellent. Get a pizza. Get real. Get you got it. Let's see if Joey's that smart. I'm not chicken. You're a turkey. He's right. Drug dealers are dorks. Don't even talk to him. Cowabunga. I'm not a chicken. You're a turkey. <laughs> that was like one of many anti-drug PSAs that I remember as a child with my favorite cartoon characters. So, I mean, look, the point is that this is nothing new. It's not some new form of manipulation for children. The government has used cartoon characters for propaganda purposes in the past. This shouldn't be something that is um, cause for hysteria. But, of course, since the Republican Party is all in on culture war nonsense of course they're going to turn this into their next big focal point you know at first it was cat in the hat then it was mr potato head and then other characters and now it is going to be big bird and sure they've been talking about it for the last week but this is going to go on for months i can assure you so of course fox news has been featuring prominent tweets from republicans and fascists where they complain about the quote indoctrination ted cruz called out government propaganda which is interesting considering the fact that he's part of the government and he goes on right-wing propaganda networks himself but let me just show you how conservatives are sounding the alarm in various ways here's the first video clip i want to show you uh the media as we're describing is already laying the groundwork for new vaccine mandates for children five to eleven year olds have been approved for the vaccine now sesame street is getting in on the act a sesame street town hall um on the abcs of the coronavirus vaccine let's watch together COVID vaccine. My mommy and my papi took me to get it this morning. Mm -hmm. oh. My mommy and my papi said that it will help keep me, my friends, my neighbors, my abuela all healthy. Y your parents are absolutely right. You know, COVID vaccines are now available for children five years and older. And the more people who get them, the better we're going to be able to help stop the spread of COVID and keep everyone healthy. I didn't know that Sanjay Gupta still had a voice after it was taken from him by Joe Rogan. But look here. Meanwhile, Carol, <laughs> that's not all. New York City's bribing elementary school kids. $100 if you get yeah. the shot. What right. are your thoughts on this propaganda and bribery? 
Well, there, there's a reason that they're doing it, right? Because it doesn't make sense otherwise. People aren't going to give their kids a shot that they don't need. And they're unable to explain why kids need this vaccination. I mean, in that clip, you know, the I'll, I'll protect my community and my abuela, but how? How are you going to do that? Kids, you know, according to Dr. Fauci, don't really spread this virus very well. Kids are not that susceptible to it. It's We've just completely, you know disregarded all the facts and nobody wants to face that anymore and you know the truth is in in if that show was real big bird would be shamed right now for not having his or you know vaccination yet and how dare you uh so that's really the reality i think that kids are going to be forced into it and they're going to be shamed into it and it, it's really unfortunate because they really don't need it i think big bird would be more than shamed i think he would be fired very soon under pbs is a federally government funded corporation i'm pretty sure that qualifies under joe biden's orders i think big birds out of a job according to the new vaccine mandates carol <laughs> yep vaccine mandates sure are bad now let me not tell you about the one that we have at fox news it's just this is propaganda they're complaining about propaganda and they're doing propaganda themselves now listen this is a fox news host they could have brought on an epidemiologist to explain whether or not your children should get vaccinated but they didn't do that because i think that they would know what the epidemiologist would recommend assuming they bring on one that's reputable but instead he brings on a new york post columnist i mean this is a medical issue so why would we want to hear from a new york post columnist if i'm a parent and i'm tuning into the news to be educated when it comes to you know a public health crisis and vaccines i don't want to hear from some columnist i want to hear from an, from an epidemiologist fox news has the budget they have the means to talk to an epidemiologist hell i have the capability of talking to an epidemiologist i did bring on an epidemiologist to talk about the covid-19 vaccines and boosters and you know delta and I just, it's its really irritating to me that people can't see through this, but a lot of people are manipulated by this. Even though it's transparent propaganda, they, they love this. Now, one thing that I actually learned from that clip, if it's true, is that New York City is apparently paying children $100 to get the vaccine. That is really good policy because that's going to work. If I were a kid... I would throw a fit whenever I had to get shots, but if you told me that I could get $100, damn right I would get that fucking vaccine. Now, moving on, I do want to share another clip where a Fox News host brought on a Republican lawmaker to fearmonger about this, and, you know, he says the same shit that you're expecting him to say. Take a look. Government funded, I want to make that clear, PBS government funded is using Big Bird to push vaccines for children. Big Bird's account tweeted this out. I got the COVID-19 vaccine today. My wing is feeling a little sore, but it'll give my body an extra protective boost that keeps me and others healthy. Senator Ted Cruz responded this way. Government propaganda for your five-year-old. One user wrote, holy cow, the indoctrination is real. Another joked, what's the treatment for myocarditis? In birds. And now the president is getting in on the act, tweeting, good on you, big bird. Getting vaccinated is the best way to keep your whole neighborhood safe. Congressman, your thoughts. 
Well, you just saw this morning in the Wall Street Journal a story, and you referenced myocarditis, about the studies that are now underway about the harms that might befall our children and those uh, that might take the vaccine and have these heart uh, issues. And so it is incumbent upon the American people to want to defend their own families, take care of their families. And now you got the government, in its infinite wisdom, coming in and trying to do propaganda to encourage kids to do superheroes. Pfizer actually ran a commercial calling kids superheroes for going and doing this and getting the vaccine. It's, it's absurd. This is why I publicly said I will take no money from Pfizer. I'm not going to take any money from a company mm. that's going to engage in that kind of propaganda. And frankly, I think Republicans, including the 13 who abandoned us on Friday and left us hanging in the wind, we need Republicans to stand up and say that we're not going to fund government on December 3rd with a continuing resolution if these mandates stay in place. So I'm calling on my colleagues to stand strong and not fund a government that's going to go do propaganda on our kids and put these unconstitutional mandates in place. Well, I am curious to know uh, what part of the government actually got involved with a six foot seven fake yellow bird telling children not to go to their pediatricians, their doctors with their parents and work this out, but do exactly what the fake bird did. I mean, I think that's a fair question. That's what we have all been telling each other. Check with your doctor, see if it's the right thing for your child. Wow. No, there's no question. And, and look, Harris, my, my father is 79. He just turned 79. My mom's 72. Uh, they've got the vaccine. That's great. And it's up to them and their doctors. But now you've got the government going around trying to use propaganda, trying to encourage people this way and have a mandate. Uh, it's, the un, it's an un-American uh, situation that an administration is trying to put that kind of power on the people. And the American people are waking up to what bureaucrats are doing every single day, mm-hmm. undermining our freedoms and using uh, PBS and using uh, the long arm of government. And, and now now I've got a constituent texting me just 30 seconds ago, right before we started, because now they're going to be forced out of a nursing home and hospital care because Medicare is bringing requirements that people have to be vaccinated if they're working in these nursing homes. We're losing care. We've got Border Patrol agents that we're, we're bleeding out. About half of our Border Patrol agents may leave. Law enforcement that are not on the job in New York. Firefighters that are missing. Why? because of a, an unnecessary virtue signaling mandate from a president who barely even knows where he is in the morning. I mean, if healthcare workers refuse to get vaccinated, then yeah, they shouldn't be in healthcare. They shouldn't have their jobs. Listen, my father stayed at nursing homes uh, before he passed away and his immune system was non-existent. He was constantly getting sick. And if you get the COVID-19 vaccine, studies show that you are less likely to spread the virus. That doesn't mean that you're not going to spread it at all, but you're just the the likelihood that you spread it is substantially reduced. We talked about this in a video a couple of weeks ago. So if they're not willing to take action to protect themselves and the people who they're caring for, yeah, they shouldn't have a job there. They shouldn't have a job there. Period. End of story. And Chip Roy was talking about how, you know, these vaccine mandates are unconstitutional and they impede on our freedoms. It sounds like he is a fucking snowflake to me. Because they're not unconstitutional. We've had vaccine mandates since the founding of the fucking country. George Washington supported vaccine mandates. And, you know, he really demonstrates how big of a snowflake he is when he talks about how bad it is that Pfizer is telling kids that if they get the COVID-19 vaccine, they are like superheroes. Now, he then says, well, you know what? Because of this, I am not taking money from Pfizer. And... In theory, whenever I hear a politician say that they're not going to take money from a special interest, 
I think that's a good thing, objectively so. But it's not like this is some gigantic principled sacrifice that he's making, considering the fact that he gets most of his money from Wall Street and the fossil fuel industry. So if he wants to swear off all corporate money altogether, then I actually would give him credit. But he's not doing that. He's saying this to virtue signal. And if you really want to stick it to Pfizer, you should advocate for them to be nationalized. Because then guess what? We control Pfizer. But he would never do that. Because then he'd say, oh, well, that's unconstitutional. These vaccine mandates are unconstitutional, but actually regulating big pharma and nationalizing big pharma gasp, that's really unconstitutional. That's really draconian. I mean, there's no winning with these sorts of people. Now, I'll be honest, I don't have the qualifications to tell you whether or not you should get your children vaccinated, but people who are specialists, people who are epidemiologists, they have made a recommendation. And here's what they say. Quote, we know it's milder. We know children navigated better than certainly older adults. Dr. Buddy Creech, a pediatric infectious disease expert at the Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, told NBC News senior medical correspondent Dr. John Torres on Thursday. But we also recognize that there's a burden of infection in children, and now we've got a tool to prevent it. We know the disease is a problem. Almost 2 million kids ages 5 to 11 have been infected. You know who the villain is. So the question is whether the vaccine is the good guy, said Dr. Dr. Paul Offit, director of the Vaccine Education Center at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a member of the FDA's advisory committee. He's confident that the answer to that question is yes. So the people who are qualified to make this recommendation are saying, yes, you should get your kids vaccinated. Now, a Kaiser Family Foundation poll found that less than one third, I believe, of Americans, it's uh, less than 30 percent are planning on getting their kids vaccinated. So this is going to be an issue. But you shouldn't look at this and think, wow, what does a New York Post a columnist think? What does Fox News say about whether or not I should make this really, really serious health decision about my child's life? I mean, if, if Fox News truly cared about your children, again, they would bring on an epidemiologist who specializes in this. They would talk to virologists, but they're not going to do that because their intended purpose is to disseminate misinformation and create propaganda. So if they brought on someone who knew what they were talking about, that wouldn't validate their narrative, then that would hurt them. So they bring on people who just tell you what you want to hear. And since you're already a Fox News viewer who's predisposed to think that vaccines are bad, then of course we don't want to vaccinate our children when the experts are saying, yeah, you should get your children vaccinated. Yes, it is the case that they are less likely to get COVID-19, but still, this is an extra layer of protection, and we've weighed out the pros and the cons. We did a cost-benefit analysis, and ultimately we do think that you should get your child vaccinated. They've been vaccinated before. And, you know, the new thing that they're going to fearmonger about is vaccine mandates for children. They're trying to make this about that. But vaccine mandates for children has been in place for a very long time. I had to get vaccinated before I could start kindergarten. Many people already see vaccine mandates as something that's not controversial. But because this is a political issue that the GOP is, you know, winning people over with, well, that's what they're going to harp on. So, I mean, Big Bird is the new focal point for the GOP and their culture war. And, you know, if you thought that we've run out of characters to be outraged over, think again. I mean, I'm forgetting that Blue's Clues for celebrating gay pride was controversial a couple of months ago. It's, it's never going to end. The GOP is going to cycle through all of these characters to be outraged over, even if they're not political, all because they have nothing to offer voters. They're not going to talk about materially what is needed to improve your lives, so they're going to keep 
talking about Mr. Potato Head and Big Bird and things that actually don't matter in your life. I'm not sure how many of you have been following COP26, but if you have been, then I'm sure that you feel the same way that the rest of us feel. Hopeless. Because even if world leaders are saying everything that they need to say, what matters more is the actions that they're taking to stop global catastrophe and they're just not doing enough you know you'll see the headlines about how you know x country made y commitment and still even if every single country fulfilled their obligations set out under the paris climate agreement even if they kept the promises that they're making today it still wouldn't be enough the planet would still warm more than 1.5 degrees celsius which means we get to see catastrophic levels of climate change when we're older and i find it downright insulting to see democrats like nancy pelosi go on a world stage and declare that america is back baby all because trump is out of office yeah he was a climate change denier he was an imbecile what little progress we made he undid but joe biden isn't the savior that democrats are making him out to be joe biden may be better than Donald Trump. He might be even better than Barack Obama when it comes to climate change. But I don't care about better. I don't care about nibbling around the edges. What I want to do is have a habitable planet when I'm as old as the, these politicians. And it just seems like they don't care about us. They don't care about our future. They don't care about our generations. They get the luxury of living to be in their 70s and 80s, but they're denying that to us. And if we are lucky enough to be around when we're their age, then who knows what we're going to see. So Nancy Pelosi took a question from Abby Martin of Empire Files. Now she very clearly didn't know who Abby Martin is because Abby Martin is a real journalist. Now Abby Martin asked her a question and it really cuts to the core of Nancy Pelosi's hypocrisy and the problem with these politicians. You know, she talks a great game when it comes to climate change, but yet she keeps expanding the military and the military is one of the largest CO2 emitters in the world, emitting more CO2 than 140 countries combined annually. So Abby Martin asked her about this, and as you're going to see, Nancy Pelosi, along with another Democrat, had no idea how to respond. Wait a minute, wait, I want a woman, I want a woman, a woman, a woman. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gender equality, here. Yeah. Uh, Maybe I don't, let's see. <laughs> Abby Martin with the Empire Files. Speaker Pelosi, you just presided over a, a large increase in the Pentagon budget. This Pentagon budget is already massive. The Pentagon is a larger polluter than 140 countries combined. How can we seriously talk about net zero if there is this bipartisan consensus to constantly expand this large contributor to climate change, which is exempt from these conferences? Military is exempt from climate talks. Well, I, I just want to use an example, if I can. Um, you know the sea level rise is an important part of, uh, you know, what's happening to the climate. And I am not a defense person, but I've had so many talks with the Defense Department, with the Navy in particular, about how they have to respond to what's going on. So I really do think that there is no reason why what we're putting together, you know, uh, with Build Back Better and other things can't respond to the Defense Department and, and, and have the same impact in terms of reducing emissions. And I do think that the Defense Department is very much aware of the fact that they have to play a major role, both from a strategic as well as, you know, for the good of the world. So I don't see what we're doing in any way or, you know, increasing the defense budget 
as being something that's inconsistent with climate action. I really don't. And may I just add that um, the National Security Advisors all tell us that the climate crisis is a national security matter. Uh, it is, of course, a health matter for our children, the water they drink, the air they breathe, etc. It is a jobs issue between clean, good, clean technologies uh, being the future of our workforce and the training for all of that. It is a national security issue because of the, uh, uh, all of the con conditions that climate crisis produces. I won't go into all of them, but they do ca are cause for migration, conflict over habitat and resources, and again, uh, a security challenge. So it's evident to me that they've never anticipated this question being asked. I can't imagine that they haven't heard about all the CO2 that the military emits, but they certainly never thought that somebody would bring up this question. And, you know, it's nice to kind of catch them off guard because that's when you really see the true colors of politicians. Um, but Nancy Pelosi responded to that question by saying, well, you know, national security advisors tell us that climate change is a national security threat. Okay, what do you want me to do with that information? What does that mean? What are the implications of this? Does that mean that they're going to stop emitting all of this CO2? Are we going to ramp down military operations? What does that mean? And if you really think about it, I, I think what it probably means is that the military acknowledges that climate change is a national security threat, but the way that they're going to respond to that is not by reducing CO2 emissions, but trying to bomb their way through all of these new national security threats. So if climate change is going to spawn, you know, uh, new waves of migrants, that's fine. We'll just use the military to address that. What's that? There's going to be wars over water. Well, we've got we've got a really great big military. It's it's just it's a fucking joke and it's insulting. And Frank Pallone Jr., he chimed in and he said, um, you know, I don't know how increasing the defense budget is inconsistent with climate action. Are you stupid? Because she just told you. Because the U.S. military alone emits more CO2 than 140 countries combined. So how can you not see how it's inconsistent? How do you not see why everything you're saying it's hypocritical because you're saying one thing and then doing something completely different. He also says, you know, um, there's no reason why what we're putting together with Build Back Better and other things can't respond to the Defense Department and have the same impact. So are you saying that Build Back Better is going to see the military size be reduced? Because I don't think there's any provisions within BBB that talks about that. So what are you even saying? And this is, this is the issue. They'll say what they think we want to hear and then they'll just keep doing business as usual. And I can't not think that it's because they don't care. Again, Nancy Pelosi, she's 81 years old. 81 years old. Not trying to be ageist, but she lived a very, very long life. If I am lucky enough to live to be as old as Nancy Pelosi, if I am uh, 81 years old, that'll be nearly 2070. It'll be 2068. See, she gets to just see the beginning of catastrophic climate change, you know, warmer weather, more extremes, more hurricanes. When I'm that old, I don't know what the fuck to expect. Who knows what world we'll be looking at? I'm sure I'll be seeing the beginning of the end of humanity's existence. I'm sure I'll see the start of society's unraveling. I don't know what the fuck to expect. Will I see wars over water? Probably won't even have to wait that long. 
She got to live a really nice old life, but she's denying that to other generations because they don't have to be around to see the consequences of their actions. So I can't help but think they don't care. They know what's needed to be done. They know. They know exactly what they need to do, and they're not doing it. They're killing us. They're killing us. Now, to give you some more context about what Abby Martin was talking about, just so you know the extent to which the military emits, you know, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and why this is the case. Newsweek explains the U.S. military's carbon boot print is enormous. Like corporate supply chains, it relies upon an extensive global network of container ships, trucks, and cargo planes to supply its operations with everything from bombs to humanitarian aid and hydrocarbon fuels. Our new study calculated the contribution of this vast infrastructure to climate change. Greenhouse gas emissions accounting usually focuses on how much energy and fuel civilians use, but recent work, including our own shows that the U.S. military is one of the largest polluters in history, consuming more liquid fuels and emitting more climate-changing gases than most medium-sized countries. If the U.S. military were a country, its fuel usage alone would make it the 47th largest emitter of greenhouse gases in the world, sitting between Peru and Portugal. Now, Forbes adds, a new report from Brown University has estimated that since the invasion of Afghanistan in 2001, the U.S. military has emitted 1,212 million metric tons of greenhouse gas gases. In 2017 alone, CO2 emissions added up to 59 million tons, more than many industrialized nations, including Sweden and Switzerland. BP's Statistical Review of World Energy records carbon dioxide emissions in different countries, and in 2017, total estimated CO2 emissions in Sweden came to 48 million tons by comparison. The U.S. military also produced more greenhouse gases than Morocco, Peru, Hungary, Finland, New Zealand, and Norway. According to the research from Brown University, the Pentagon would be the world's 55th largest CO2 emitter if it was a country. So it varies based on the report and how they calculate it, but looking at this graph here, the U.S. military is one of the largest emitters. This is from 2017. As you can see, it passed Morocco, Sweden, Finland, Switzerland. And again, this is just our military, not the country, just the military alone. It's almost inconceivable that this is real, but it is. And yet Democrats keep expanding the military budget even more. So when we're thinking about climate change, if you're not actually factoring in the military into this equation, then um, you're, you're not doing enough. You're not doing enough, right? You're not serious about the threat that this poses to humanity. So I absolutely give Abby Martin credit for actually holding someone in power accountable and asking a good question. Um, I will use this time, of course, to promote more good work from Abby Martin. She's working on a film right now. It's called Earth's Greatest Enemy. And I don't know if I can play the teaser trailer because it has music that might be copyrighted. But, you know, I'll link to it down below. And if you're watching this on a different platform other than YouTube, you can go to earthsgreatestenemy.com to see the teaser. Uh, this is basically a full film about this very subject, the extent to which the U.S. military is one of the largest contributors to climate change. So overall, you know, um, it's really nice to see these politicians squirm. But ultimately, you know, if, if they're going to talk the talk, then... They need to walk the walk, and we shouldn't applaud them for just doing the bare minimum and saying what they need to say. Now, we're to a point where we have a limited window left to act, and we need to see some fucking action, and not just nice words. Would you be living right by the water? You know, we just came back from Miami, and in Miami, you've got all of these, literally these 30, 40, 50, 70 million dollar houses all on the water, 
right? And they're telling us the sea level's rising. Yet why are all the rich people still moving to the water? Are they stupid? Or could it possibly be that all of this is really about control and they're trying to usher in a whole bunch of policies that, policies that will enshrine that they always kind of stay in power and you eat bugs? Well, there you have it. Climate change has now been thoroughly debunked by political commentator Dave Rubin. Now, I'm not necessarily sure what motivates rich people, and I won't pretend to know what motivates them. Maybe it's greed, stupidity to an extent. But most of the rich people buying up mansions in Florida, they're really old. So part of the reason why they're doing that is because they're going to be dead long before Miami is underwater. So they don't really have to care about climate change. But I do know that Dave Rubin sounded a little bit different when it comes to the issue of climate change before he decided to take Koch brother money. So climate change, I can't believe that in 2015, still, when you watch cable news and whenever they're talking about climate change, they still bring on two people to debate it as if it's in a, a debate. You know what I mean? It's not a debate. And fast forward to 2021, and Dave Rubin is part of the debate that he once denounced, and he's on the opposite side. He's now saying, oh, well, maybe this is more about control. I don't have a very good Dave Rubin impression, but you get the point. It's incredibly disingenuous, and he's saying this not because he believes it. In fact, I don't think that he believes anything that he says. He's saying this for money. But there is still kind of a question, at least when it comes to climate change. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a debate, but the debate is how fucked we are. And that's really difficult to determine currently. Are we really fucked or are we really, really, really fucked as a species? Now, just to kind of give you a sense as to how bad it's going to get, the Juice Media put together an honest government ad, and this is a satirical video, where they kind of talk about the governments and the world leaders ambivalence at COP24 and their refusal to take climate change seriously. And basically, as you can see, there's an emissions gap that's not being addressed. So this is where we need to be and this is where we'd be if world leaders didn't break their pledges made at COP24. So even if they fulfill the commitments that they're making, that still wouldn't be enough. We're still fucked. So at this rate, we will surpass the 1.5 degree tipping point and set off catastrophic levels of climate change. So if this is a debate, I think I would be on the side of, hey guys, we're really, really, really fucked. And I think maybe we should take this a little bit more seriously. It's like we're, we're driving really, really fast and we know there's a cliff and we're headed straight off that cliff and world leaders at COP24 aren't necessarily suggesting that we swerve or we slam on the brakes. They're just saying, yeah, we know we're going to go off the cliff, but maybe we'll just go a little bit slower, tap the brakes. I mean, the end result doesn't change. We're still going off the cliff. We're all going to die. So the question is, why aren't we taking this seriously? And I think that you know the answer to that. It's because we are refusing to get off of fossil fuels. And this was addressed in that wonderful video by the Juice Media. And I want to play it for you here so you can see what I'm talking about. But you have to see the video in its entirety. And I want you to support them. Uh, so I'll give you a really quick snippet of uh, their Honest Government ad. It is incredible. Hello, I'm from the government with an update on how we're handling the climate crisis. We know you're all counting on us to solve this problem so humanity can keep enjoying its favorite pastime, continuing to live on this planet. But you see, we've realized that we are the problem. And so, how should we put this? We're actually going to get us all killed. 
healed. Look at this graph shaped like a penis because it shows how fucked we are. This is where we are now. And as we can see, it's already pretty fucked with massive fires, floods, heat waves, locusts, bullshit. This is what scientists call the stop here or we're fucked point. And this is where we're currently headed. Or as scientists call it, net fucked by 2050. Okay, that's it. That's all I'm going to play because it's really good. So I'll link to it in the description box. If you're watching this on YouTube, go watch it and support the Juice Media. Their work is hilarious but it's also it's bleak it's satire but it's it's gonna make you laugh but also come away feeling maybe a little bit more depressed and hopeless so don't watch it if you're in a good mood but it's it's really good work um but essentially the takeaway is that when we look at cop 24 it's woefully inadequate leaders are saying what they think we want to hear but they're not doing what needs to be done to actually stop catastrophic levels of climate change now, there was a really great clip from CNN, of all places, where Fareed Zakaria actually addressed this. And he explained how all of the good news that's coming out of COP24, that is something that's important and worth celebrating. Still, if the goal is to avoid disaster and save the human sh species, then we're just not doing enough. And we have to be honest about that. Take a look. Believe it or not, there is some real good news on the climate front this week. Approximately 100 countries announced an agreement to cut methane emissions 30 percent by 2030, closing a glaring gap in climate policy. They also reached a broad agreement to end deforestation in the same time frame, including pledging funds to back it up. Deforestation, by the way, produces about 10 percent of the world's carbon emissions. The private sector has committed to align $130 trillion with the goal of net zero emissions in their investments by 2050 toward limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Positive technology trends are also accelerating. In the past 10 years, the cost of solar and wind power has declined by 89 and 70 percent respectively. And over the past three decades, lithium-ion battery prices have gone down about 97 percent. Thanks to clean energy and efficiency, it is now possible for countries to grow their economies without increasing carbon emissions. Alas, it's not enough. We need emissions to actually fall and by a lot, not simply stay constant, and we are not on track for that to happen. Even if all countries follow through on the commitments in the Paris Accords, and most have not, that will reduce carbon emissions by just 7.5 percent by 2030. Experts agree that what we need to cut these emissions by is about 55 percent by that date, just to keep temperature rises under 1.5 degrees Celsius. Credit where it's due. That was fantastic. And if mainstream media actually covered climate change in this way more frequently, I think that people would get a better sense of what we're doing wrong because it's easy to think okay well everything's going to be okay we'll figure it out when you have world leaders going at you know going on the stage at cop 24 and basically assuring people that everything's going to be okay we're going to stop deforestation we're going to stop this we're going to do this and meet this goal but it's still not enough and i want to read to you the important point that i want people to drill into their minds so they can recite it again because it's really important even if all countries follow through on the Paris Accords, and most have not. But even if they did, that will reduce carbon emissions by just 7.5% by 2030. Experts agree that we need to cut emissions by 55% by 2030.
just to keep temperatures from rising above 1.5 degrees Celsius. So I repeat, if everybody does what they've pledged, we're going to cut emissions by 7.5%. When we need to be cutting it by 55% at a minimum. I mean, how can you not hear this and feel really hopeless? Well, you know, it's easy to get demoralized, but I think that part of the issue is people just don't know what we need to do, how bad it is, and they are relying on government just figuring it out. And part of the Juice Media's ad is that, you know, these uh, world leaders who are making these projections, which even if they're meager, they're still, you know, um, they're, they're factoring in new technologies that don't even exist yet, but they're anticipating the creation of new technologies to help remove carbon from the air when that's just it's so unrealistic and we're we're right here when the conversation that we actually should be having takes place within this window right so we're so far out of whack that if we don't have a, an honest conversation about climate change then it's going to be too late we have a limited window left to act and we have to use this time very wisely otherwise we will be fucked will be really, really fucked. So people like Dave Rubin can claim that climate change is really about control and climate change is disproven by the fact that people live in Miami. And part of that might also be because people just assume that, you know, human beings, we're creative, we're innovative, we're going to figure it out because we have this instinct to, to survive. But it's time to shift the conversation and actually put it in really clear terms for people. Human beings are going to go extinct if we don't take action really soon. So no more listening to these dumb pledges from politicians. No more speaking about nibbling around the edges. It's time to take drastic action. Otherwise, we're doomed. And I don't think that the left and people who want to save the world have been clear enough about this. I think that we have tried to not be overly alarmist and overly hyperbolic in our language because I think that it's easy for the right-wingers to capitalize on that and try to disprove what we're saying and just think, oh, well, you know, they're just trying to grab your attention. But we're to the point where we should be sounding the alarm as loudly as possible and screaming at the top of our lungs because once this window of opportunity passes and we don't take action, then climate change may be irreversible and it may already be irreversible but we have a chance we have a small opportunity to maybe save our assets just a little bit if it's irreversible then it's like a snowball it just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger and even if we do what we need to in the future we can't control it so we've got to stop it and um that requires us to at least start having an honest conversation about what's required stop with the bullshit Stop with the platitudes from politicians. Call them out and hold them accountable. If they're saying one thing and doing another, you know, it, it starts with us actually knowing what has to be accomplished and why the current projections, current goals, current commitments are woefully insufficient. All right, folks, we're going to talk about Dennis Prager. And before we get started, I want to preface this conversation by saying that there is two things that every single American needs to know about Dennis Prager. He's stupid and rich. He's a rich idiot. Now, you might think, how are those facts if you're just insulting his intelligence? Isn't that an ad hominem attack? Well, no, I would argue that calling Dennis Prager stupid is actually a statement of fact, considering this is someone who just a couple of weeks ago admitted that he purposefully tried to get infected with COVID-19. Also, he can get immunity from the virus that you can get 
immune from by just taking a vaccine that is incredibly safe and widely available. Somebody who does that, somebody who tries to get infected with a deadly virus at his age is a few fries short of a Happy Meal, if you ask me. But I want to talk about the latest stupid thing that he said, because he's back on this anti-vax kick. I mean, he is refusing to get the vaccine and uh, hence why he, he got the virus because he wanted immunity. Uh, anyways, he's refusing to get the vaccine and he's going to uh, say something about anti-vaxxers. And it really proves that conservatives really want to be victims. They want to be perceived as, you know, these... Uh, these uh, marginalized groups in society, or as marginalized as, uh, if not more marginalized than historically marginalized groups in society. And he's going to compare anti-vaxxers to one historically marginalized community, but he's going to take it even further than that. Take a look, and then we'll dissect what he has to say when we come back. You no, know, what she found funny was that she doesn't have a magic wand. But somebody in her party has a magic wand. The reason we're paying so much is because the magic wand of the Democratic president was to destroy the, uh, the energy independence of the United States of America. With one magic wand, the man ruined our economy, ruined the ability of the, of the lower and middle class to pay their energy bills as in Germany, by the way. Uh, it, this is not just unique to the United States. A anywhere that you have people who are governed by fear of global warming, uh, a, 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 an idiotic, irrational, sick fear of, of, of extinction of the, of the biosphere. I mean, do you understand the, the, the nonsense that we live with? It, it, it's, it, if we survive this, as a free country, historians will just ask, how did this happen? How did people get governed by irrational fears? Whether, whether it is of, of the non-vaccinated who, who are the pariahs of America, as I have not seen in my lifetime, any pariah group like, uh, like this. During the AIDS crisis, can you imagine if, if gay men and intravenous drug users who, who the, the, were the vast majority of people with AIDS had they been uh, pariahs the way the, the non-vaccinated are? But it would have been inconceivable. And it should have been inconceivable. They should not have been made pariahs. Mm. But, uh, but yeah. this is well, kosher. This yeah. is okay. You can make the non-vaccinated. So uh, it, it's a different well, America. Well. Okay, lots to unpack there. So the first thing that I want to talk about before we get to his comments on the AIDS crisis is that he claims that if you believe in climate change, like the overwhelming majority of sane people and scientists, then uh, you have an idiotic, irrational sick fear. Now, it's weird that he says that as a conservative because the totality of conservative politics is to be irrationally fearful of things, be fearful of the unknown, be fearful of marginalized groups, be fearful of immigrants, be fearful of societal changes. That's conservatism, but yet he's saying that it's everyone else, it's liberals and leftists who are irrationally fearful and that that's sick. I mean, I think this is projection, and it's already been confirmed through science, which he doesn't believe in, by the way, that conservatives are more fearful because there are differences between the brains of conservatives and liberals. At least there's evidence that that's the case. So, a University College London study actually looked at MRI scans from liberals and conservatives, and they found that conservatives actually had increased right amygdala sizes, which kind of confirms that 
yeah, you guys are the ones that are fearful, and it's it's no uh, surprise that you're basing all of your politics on being fearful. But moving on from that, I just thought that that was incredibly stupid. Uh, but he compared anti-vaxxers to gays during the height of the AIDS crisis. Anti-vaxxers today are bigger pariahs than gays during the AIDS crisis. Now, for him to say something like that, which is just ahistorical, is bizarre considering the fact that he was alive during the AIDS crisis. But nonetheless, he says that, can you imagine if gay men and intravenous drug users, had they been pariahs the way non-vaccinated are? It would have been inconceivable. It would have been inconceivable. Were you living on a different planet during the AIDS crisis, Dennis? He also said that never in his lifetime has he seen a pariah group like the unvaccinated. It's got to be like a kink that conservatives want to be the victims. And I'm not here to kink shame anyone, but he genuinely wants people to think that conservatives are the most hated, marginalized group in society. And I don't really even know how to respond to what he's saying right off the bat, but just at face value, I think that Marianne Williamson had the best response in saying, my God, man, were you not there? Exactly. Now, there's not really a way to debunk what he's saying. It's just, it's laughably stupid and you don't have to debunk it. But for those of you who were not alive during the AIDS crisis, I want to show a 1982 news clip. This is from NBC Nightly News, where they were learning about HIV and AIDS, uh, and they didn't really know what was happening, but they knew that this was a virus that was exclusively, almost exclusively affecting gay men. Take a look. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta today released the results of a study which shows that the lifestyle of some male homosexuals has triggered an epidemic of a rare form of cancer. Robert Bazell now in Atlanta. Bobby Campbell of San Francisco and Billy Walker of New York both suffer from a mysterious newly discovered disease which affects mostly homosexual men but has also been found in heterosexual men and women. The condition severely weakens the body's ability to fight disease. Many victims get a rare form of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. Others get an infection known as pneumocystis pneumonia. Researchers know of 413 people who have contracted the condition in the past year. One third have died and none have been cured. Death didn't scare me. It was, it was uh, living with this for a long time. That's more frightening than, uh, than death. Investigators have examined the habits of homosexuals for clues. I was in the fast lane at one time in terms of the way that I lived my life, and now I'm not. The best guess is that some infectious agent is causing it. Today, researchers here at the National Centers for Disease Control said they had found several cases where people who had been sex partners both had the condition. The scientists say this probably means they are dealing with some new, deadly, sexually transmitted disease. The investigators see this as a serious public health problem. From an epidemic point of view, uh, there have been more deaths from Kaposi's sarcoma and pneumocystis pneumonia than have occurred with all the cases of toxic shock syndrome and the Philadelphia outbreak of Legionnaire's disease combined. Researchers are now studying blood and other samples from the victims, trying to learn what is causing the disease. So far, they have had no luck. Robert Bazell, NBC News, Atlanta. Okay, now let's try to put all of this into context. So you see this news report, and it's the early 1980s. You know that, you know, there was this Stonewall riot, and there is 
a burgeoning LGBTQ plus movement in the United States, but you don't know anyone who's gay. At this time, many, if not most gay people weren't out of the closet because it just wasn't socially acceptable to come out to your friends and your family members. So you learn that, um, you know, not only are gay people this new thing that you've never heard of before, but on top of that, there's this gay plague of sorts. And this is happening at the same time when Ronald Reagan's moral majority emerged, when there was this reactionary pushback against this growing LGBTQ plus movement. So all of this kind of combined. And to say that gay people at this time weren't as big of pariahs as anti-vaxxers are today is just batshit fucking insane. And that's not taking into account the fact that the gay community, they saw sometimes more than a dozen of their friends die and they didn't know why this was happening. They didn't know why it was happening. So let me show you uh, or tell you about the response that the government had to gay men back in the 1980s during the AIDS crisis. So as NBC News reports, after the Stonewall riots in 1969, LGBTQ activists across the country made significant civil rights advances and secured some municipal and state-level protections against discrimination in public employment. Roughly two dozen states had decriminalized sodomy by 1980, and some activists were already talking about the next frontier, legal recognition for marriage. Almost at the exact time that HIV cases first began to pop up in Los Angeles, and New York, the LGBTQ rights struggle faced a reactionary backlash led by figures like Anita Bryant and Reverend Jerry Falwell, whose moral majority inveighed against giving rights to gay people. As the anti-gay reaction gained steam across America with the election of moral majority ally Ronald Reagan, activists found their demands for attention for a growing medical crisis were ignored. The march for LGBTQ civil rights ground to a halt after more than a dozen states repealed sodomy bans in the 1970s, just two jurisdictions Wisconsin and the Virgin Islands decriminalized sodomy in the 1980s. In 1982, Larry Speaks, press secretary for Ronald Reagan, laughed when asked about whether the president was tracking the spread of AIDS. It's known as gay plague, the journalist asked. Some people in the room chuckled. I don't have it, do you? Speaks snapped back as the room erupted in laughter. Do you? You didn't answer my question. How do you know? In other words, they're gay. We don't care. Let them die. That was the response from the government. Now compare that with COVID-19 today or in 2020. And what was the response? The government poured billions of dollars into the development of a vaccine. And even in America, a late stage capitalist hellhole, the vaccine is free. It's actually free. Everyone can take it and it's widely available. Back then, they didn't care but at least the government acknowledges that this pandemic is bad and they're taking action to stop the pandemic. They're trying to save lives. In fact, the vaccine itself has already saved nearly 300,000 lives, according to an estimate by the Yale School of Public Health, and it prevented more than a million hospitalizations. So in effect, the response today to anti-vaxxers by the government is, hey, please take this vaccine, it'll save your life. Whereas in the 1980s, during the AIDS crisis, the response from the government to gay people was, don't really care if you die, go away. We don't like you, we don't want you here. A little bit different, don't you think, Dennis Prager? But he knows this, he knows this, and being hyperbolic is 
how he gets people to pay attention in a way we're kind of feeding into what he wants, right? He wants the eyeballs on him. This is someone who is incredibly stupid. He's reactionary and he just likes attention. Any attention, even if it's negative, is good for him. It raises his profile. But I, I think that to say that anti-vaxxers are bigger pariahs than gay men during the height of the AIDS crisis, there's something uniquely stupid and offensive and evil about that, quite frankly, because there is no comparison. There really is no comparison. Anti-vaxxers today, their lives are mildly inconvenient. If you work at a job that has a vaccine mandate, well, you can either test, usually weekly, or you can get a vaccine which is safe and effective. But back then, people were begging the government to pay attention to the AIDS crisis, and the government just did not care because the government did not like gay people. Back then, it was a fight to get sodomy decriminalized. So it's a little bit different, and I think that the history here is important because when a conservative reactionary says something that's ahistorical, I think it is important to correct the record, especially if you're younger and you don't really know about the history. But no, long story short, it's a little bit different the way that we treat anti-vaxxers today and the way that we treated gay people during the AIDS crisis. We might make fun of anti-vaxxers today and say that they need to educate themselves with actual science and data— and their lives might be somewhat inconvenient because of their own stupidity, but we're not leaving them to die. We're not celebrating their deaths and pushing them away, as was the case in the 1980s. See, back in the 80s, many people didn't know a gay person. We all know someone who's anti-vaxxer. I know anti-vaxxers. I have them in my family, in my social circle. I don't want them to die. The reason why I push the vaccine on them is because I want their lives to be saved. It's a bit of a difference. See, the compassion here is there whereas it was lacking before but um yeah if you didn't know now you know the democratic party just can't quit donald trump and going into the midterms the dccc chair sean maloney is saying yeah it's actually really important that we hyper-focus on Donald Trump because electorally, that's still really beneficial. Except we just tried this out very recently. Terry McAuliffe practically ran a campaign on Orange Man Bad, and he lost. They literally sent out mailers in Virginia tying Glenn Youngkin to Donald Trump, and that didn't work. They lost. So why would they continue what is obviously a losing strategy? Well, because they don't think it's a losing strategy. They genuinely believe that somebody who politically has no power currently should be their main focus, as opposed to anything else, a single policy. As Max Greenwood of The Hill reports, in an interview with The New York Times, Representative Sean Patrick Maloney, the chairman of the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, contested the notion that Trump had lost his potency as a talking point for Democrats, arguing that Virginia Governor-elect Glenn Youngkin made a concerted effort throughout his campaign to distance himself from the former president. That in itself, he said, was proof that Trump is still a tremendous liability for Republicans, even when he's not on the ballot himself. Glenn Youngkin ran like a teenaged girl in a slasher movie movie away from Donald Trump, Maloney told the Times. They're making fun of him on Saturday Night Live for how much he tried to run away from Donald Trump. For some Democrats, Yunkin's victory underscored the limits of their Trump-centric strategy, prompting them to urge the party to focus more on policy issues and legislative accomplishments in 2022, when their razor-thin House and Senate majorities will be on the line. Maloney acknowledged that his party's losses in Virginia and other states last week ought to be a wake-up call that we're not getting the job done on messaging, but he also 
argue that the situation is more complicated than simply saying that an anti-Trump message is no longer effective. The competitive congressional districts are in largely suburban swing areas, and in those areas, Glenn Youngkin underperformed Mitt Romney, he said, referring to the U.S. Senator and 2021 GOP presidential nominee. I think it's more complicated than people are saying. Trump's toxicity continues to be a tremendous liability with suburban swing voters. And therein lies another issue with their strategizing. They're going after suburban swing voters rather than trying to mobilize their own base. I mean, Democrats like Barack Obama will complain about how, you know, the voters just frequently, they don't, they don't show up. Young people don't show up because, you know, um, you're disappointed and you don't think that the last politician in office made enough progress, but you've got to show up. Except maybe they'd show up if you gave them a reason to show up. I mean, look at the way that the negotiations took place with regard to bipartisan infrastructure and Build Back Better. Progressives got basically marginalized and they got no say. And you expect young people to be excited about that? No, idiot. You don't need swing voters in suburban areas if you get out your base. You have this gigantic, unawakened uh, political behemoth in millennials and Gen Zers and you're just completely not trying to win them over at all. Like, there's there's no effort being made there. Instead, you want to go after suburban swing voters. They are so clueless, and this is the head of the DCCC saying this, and to make matters worse, it's not like Sean Maloney is the worst of the worst when it comes to DCCC heads. There's been a lot of really bad DCCC heads. Sherry Bustos was one of them, and Sean Maloney is better on a number of uh, areas. But having said that, though, strategically, Democrats just, they don't know what they need to do. They think that just hyper-focusing on Donald Trump is going to be the ticket. Now, I will grant them that, yes, Trump does have a lot of sway over the Republican Party still. But the evidence that you should still focus on Donald Trump is that Glenn Youngkin was running away from Donald Trump. And they did a skit on SNL about how he was running away from Donald Trump. Who cares what SNL says? I mean, this is the most boomer, out-of-touch shit I've, I've heard. But this is par for the course. Democratic Party operatives are like the biggest scam artists in the country, and they still continue to give the Democratic Party horrible advice against common sense, and they still get paid millions of dollars every single year. So let me tell you how wonderful that uh, anti-Trump strategy was for Terry McAuliffe. Let me put it into perspective for you because he talked about Donald Trump so much that it became a meme. And guess what? Glenn Youngkin made an ad about that. So, you know, you hear about how, oh, well, Glenn Youngkin was really afraid to be, you know, equated with Donald or compared to Donald Trump rather. And they even made skits about him on SNL. But Glenn Youngkin ran a much more effective campaign when it comes to messaging because he took their anti-Trump message and he used it against them to make it seem as if Terry McAuliffe had no policy substance. Take a look. Terry McAuliffe wants to make this about a man who's not on the ballot in Virginia. Terry McAuliffe's campaign in Virginia is all about Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump. 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 Donald Trump. Trump. Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump. He keeps invoking Trump. Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump. Have you made this race too much about Trump? 
Uh, no. Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump, 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 Do you know, Dan, this isn't about Trump. Yeah, so you can expect that in 2022 when Democrats inevitably run the same failed strategy. And it's not just that they're wrong to think that hyper-focusing on Trump instead of policies is a good electoral strategy, but Democratic Party operatives in numerous articles after the Virginia loss, uh, they're saying that, well, you know, this is very clearly a rejection of the far-left policies. Except, how is this a rejection of the far-left, the quote, far-left, when we have a moderate president and moderate senators dictating all of the party's agenda? It just, it, it's honestly... It feels like they're being purposefully obtuse, like they want to lose because that's just easier. You know, being in a position of power, there's a lot of pressure. There's this expectation that you deliver for your constituents. But I think it's much more easy to just remain out of power and fundraise off of Donald Trump when there's no expectation that you deliver. So, I mean, I, I don't know what it is, but... That's what we're going to see if Democrats continue with this failed strategy. And they're not helping themselves. I mean, if you, they were going to brag and, uh, you know, give young voters, for example, who they need to mobilize to win a reason to get out and vote, they can do the bare minimum. Joe Biden can cancel student debt via executive order. He can legalize marijuana. But they're not doing it. They passed their bipartisan so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill and they're trying to brag about that when it is woefully inadequate as it relates to climate change is actually a net negative when it comes to the climate change emission or the co2 emissions that we're producing and who knows if we're even going to see them pass build back better and if it is something that's passed then you can you know guarantee it's going to be worse than it is now so it's just it's frustrating and i can't not logically deduce that they're not this stupid they're not this dumb they're not that dense. There's no way. I refuse to believe that. I think that they want to lose to an extent. Maybe some Democrats want to win, but a lot of them would be happy if they kept their seat but lost the majority because, hey, then we could just sit back and send out a thousand emails to our constituents about how Donald Trump said this and then he said that. And there's zero expectation that we deliver for our constituents. That's genuinely what I believe is the case with a lot of Democrats. I don't know the proportion. Maybe it's 50 percent. Maybe it's 40 percent. But a lot of Democrats, they prefer to not be in power because they just want to be comfortable. They just want to hang on to the seat. And right now they see that there's a lot of momentum for climate change action. There's a lot of momentum to expand Medicare. And that makes them feel uncomfortable because then they have to go against their corporate donors. They don't want that. So instead, they're just they're coming up with this just insane strategy to hyper-focus on somebody who's no longer president. Sure, he may run again, but he's not the president right now. He's not going to be the president in 2022. So for them to hyper-focus on Donald Trump, they're intentionally doing something that is a losing strategy and i just i feel like more people need to point that out it's absurd to me honestly when india walton was ultimately defeated by byron brown and his right-in campaign she conceded she had the decency to concede which is something that he refused to do after she beat him in a democratic party primary he ran a sore loser right-in campaign and he cobbled together as many big donors as he could find and he defeated her, proving that money equals electoral success in late-stage capitalist America. Now, you know, this isn't something that we can change. Progressives 
are accepting that she lost and we have to move on. Having said that, though, there still should be a level of accountability from the Democratic Party establishment as it relates to Byron Brown, because they always tell us, if you lose in the Democratic Party primary, it is incumbent on you to endorse the Democrat and support that person. But here, we saw that not only did Byron Brown refuse to endorse India Walton, but the Democratic Party in New York refused to weigh in and endorse India Walton when she was the Democratic Party nominee. So if they want this whole party unity line to stick and they don't want a bunch of progressive candidates to run their own sore loser write-in campaigns after they're defeated by incumbent Democrats, then they have to at least prove to us that they care a little bit about this message of unity and it wasn't all just a facade to get us to shut the fuck up after we lose primaries. Um, so there's some progressives who are calling on the DNC to strip Byron Brown of his credentials from the DNC. And I think that that it's not going to change anything, but it's the bare minimum that the DNC and the Democratic Party establishment can do to at least virtue signal to us about their seriousness when it comes to unity. So David Siders and Holly Otterbein of Politico explain, when you pull a stunt like this, somebody wins a primary, a working class woman, and you go to every rich donor in both parties to fund a write-in campaign, it's a disgrace, said Larry Cohen, chair of the Bernie Sanders Aligned Group, Our Revolution. Cohen, a DNC member himself, said he plans to organize an effort to press Democrats to remove Brown from his post on the National Committee, and on Monday, India Walton, the unsuccessful Democratic nominee for Buffalo mayor, threw her weight behind the move. Not only do I support the DNC, revoking Byron Brown's post, I believe it would set a dangerous precedent not to, she said in a statement to Politico. In addition to our revolution, the New York chapter of the left-wing Working Families Party also supports the effort to oust Brown from the DNC. Now again, revoking his DNC post would do nothing. It's merely a symbolic concession that progressives are asking the Democratic Party establishment to make. Because again, they would be outraged if any progressive that's running for Congress dared to run a sore loser write-in campaign after they were defeated in a primary. We know exactly what they'd say. Oh, you're helping the Republicans. This is bad for unity. I mean, even if you dare to utter any criticism, even a tepid criticism of a Democratic Party incumbent, they, they freak the fuck out. So if they're serious about unity, which they're not, then at a minimum, they'd do this. But I mean, party operatives are responding to this and they're saying, yeah, fuck off. And Byron Brown is kind of saying the same thing, pouring salt in the wound. This, to me, sounds like another case of sour grapes out of our revolution, said John Rainish, a New York-based Democratic strategist. I think that progressives are feeling cornered, which is why you're seeing a lot of the lashing out. Where Democrats did badly and it was a bad night in last week's election, a lot of it was a loud and clear message from voters that people feel the party is going too far to the left. In a statement, the Brown campaign said, Mayor Byron Brown's Democratic Party bona fides are well known and beyond reproach. Any questions of them by Bernie Sanders or India Walton are without merit and are simply sour grapes following a decisive write-in defeat in the Buffalo mayoral election last week. Stu Loser, a Democratic strategist in New York who previously worked for Schumer, said, Why would we kick Mayor Brown off the DNC? He's proven he can win tough races. The prospect of Brown, a former state Democratic Party chair, being stripped of his leadership position in the party is slim to none. Even the progressive Democrats calling for the rebuke acknowledge that. You're not likely going to see Chair Jamie Harrison at the DNC or anybody at the White House do one thing, said Cohen, who described the effort as an uphill slog. So in response to any accountability for him basically saying party unity my ass, they're saying, go fuck yourself. Spitting in the face 
of India Walton, Bernie Sanders, and not just them, an entire wing of the party who they're on the cusp of losing permanently. I can't tell you how many leftists I know who are just done with electoral politics, and for good reason, because it hasn't yielded any meaningful results. No matter how many times we vote for Democrat, uh, Democrats loyally, nothing changes. They don't do nearly enough. So, you know, they want us to vote for them. They want loyalty, but yet, at every opportunity, they spit in our fucking eyes. I mean, again, I'm going to say it for the third time. Imagine if a progressive incumbent ran a primary campaign against, or, or a progressive challenger ran a primary campaign against an incumbent and lost, and then ran this sore loser right in campaign, they would never accept it. They would call on him or her to step down. But, you know, when it goes the other way, they don't care. Unity only goes one way with the Democratic Party. Now, one more statement that I want to read. This is from Jay Jacobs. He's the chair of the New York Democratic Party, and this is the guy who compared India Walton to David Duke. Here's what he says. He says that Brown is a good Democrat, and progressives should, quote, move on. Now, he wasn't speaking specifically about the campaign to remove Byron Brown from the DNC. Rather, he was just speaking about him beating her with this write-in campaign. And look, they are showing you who they are right now. It's not like this is a surprise. We knew who they were from the beginning. But the next time there's some contentious Democratic Party primary and they talk about the progressive being a little bit too contentious, making too many attacks, show them what they said here. Use this against them. Throw it in their faces. Because if they want unity from us, but they don't exhibit that themselves, express unity or any mutual respect whatsoever, then we absolutely should not grant it to them. But again, none of this is surprising. I've been covering this for years now. And the Democratic Party is uh, rotten and corrupt to its core. They don't care about winning elections. All they care about is appeasing their corporate donors. And Byron Brown is a proxy for their corporate interests. So they're happy that he won over someone who actually cared about the lives of people in Buffalo. And that's sad, but that's the state of affairs in American politics. Well, in the least surprising news ever, Joe Manchin is already signaling that he will not support the Build Back Better Act less than a week after the Progressive Caucus caved and decided to vote for the so-called bipartisan infrastructure proposal. So in an article for Newsweek, John Jackson writes, Manchin signals hesitation to passing Biden's social agenda with inflation getting worse. Now, he doesn't explicitly say that he's not going to vote for this because of inflation, but really what he's doing is laying the groundwork for his inevitable no vote on Build Back Better. He tweeted out, By all accounts, the threat posed by record inflation to the American people is not transitory and is instead getting worse from the grocery store to the gas pump americans know the inflation tax is real and dc can no longer ignore the economic pain americans feel every day so he doesn't cite build back better but of course his excuse when he votes no will be i couldn't support any new spending during this time when we see inflation like this now uh john jackson kind of reads between the lines to deduce what i think is pretty logical that this is him kind of telling everyone I'm a no vote. 
Shocker. Manchin doesn't specifically cite Biden's plan in his brief Twitter post, but earlier this month he spoke about his hesitation regarding the potential impact the spending package could have on the economy. Throughout the last three months, I have been straightforward about my concerns that I will not support a reconciliation package that expands social programs and irresponsibly adds to our nearly $29 trillion in national debt that no one else seems to care about, nor will I support a package that risks hurting American families suffering from historic inflation, Manchin said during a November 1st press conference. Simply put, I will not support a bill that is this consequential without thoroughly understanding the impact it will have on our national debt, our economy, and the American people, Manchin added. And let's get one thing straight. He doesn't actually care about inflation. He doesn't actually care about whether or not the American people are suffering. If he did, he would support policies to improve their lives, such as build back better. But this is about him appeasing his corporate donors. And one Republican billionaire donor is actually holding a fundraiser for him very soon, perhaps to thank him for tanking his own party's agenda. So this is not shocking to me. But knowing the way that Joe Manchin is, knowing how dishonest he is, and that he would pull out whatever excuse to vote against this, now I have to ask myself, do progressives in the House regret voting for the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill before the Senate voted on Build Back Better, knowing that this was not just a possibility, but a likelihood. Remember, the reason why Ro Khanna decided to support this in an interview with uh, Jen Uger, he explained that, you know, he believed that there was this implicit agreement between him and the president and that Manchin ultimately would be a yes vote on Build Back Better. I think publicly Manchin doesn't want to uh, make those commitments, but our belief is that the president has a private uh, a commitment from 50 senators uh, that he could pass this and that he didn't come to us for many, many months. And he only came to the progressives once he had that commitment. I personally believe that he will pass the Build Back Better agenda, that Manchin ultimately will be a yes vote. Turns out that might not be the case. And again, less than a week after they passed the so-called bipartisan infrastructure deal, he's already signaling that he's not going to support what you wanted him to vote for. Because why would he? He got his corporate handout in the form of the bipartisan infrastructure, aka toll road bill. So he has zero incentive to support this, especially when his corporate donors are in his ear saying don't support this. Now, Pramila Jayapal, she got assurances from people in the House who are conservative as well, right-wing Democrats aligned with the mansions and the cinemas of the world, and she thought it was necessary to vote for the infrastructure bill because they looked her in the eye. I wish I were kidding about this, but this is actually something that she said. And, and every single one of those individuals looked us in the eyes and said they are voting for it. Yeah, so what's to stop them from also suddenly having a change of heart because of inflation concerns? I mean... This is why they should have never caved. Now, in an interview with Rachel Maddow, Pramila Jayapal still is indicating that she believes that progressives won somehow, and she is very, very adamant that there's going to be a vote on Build Back Better next week. We'll see about that because they're waiting on an economic impact analysis to be conducted, and it doesn't seem as if it's going to be finished by then, and even if it is finished by then. I mean, even Rachel Maddow kind of seemed as if she was skeptical that they wouldn't just come up with an excuse as to why they wouldn't support it. It's really sad to see 
things play out the way that I expected it to play out. But again, if you are even somewhat savvy, you know that this is what Joe Manchin was going to do and progressives got rolled. The bad thing, however, is that Joe Biden is probably going to sign the so-called bipartisan infrastructure bill into law on Monday. And if that happens, then that's it. Joe Manchin is probably not going to be a yes vote on Build Back Better, which means that we're net worse off because of that bipartisan infrastructure bill when it comes to climate change. See, if you don't pass both of them simultaneously, then overall we're doing more harm than good. And that's really sad. And I would like to think that maybe this is going to be some sort of a learning experience for progressives, but odds are they're still going to be weak. Odds are they're still going to cave in future negotiations. Hence why Democratic Party leadership is never going to take any of their threats seriously because they're not serious and they will cave. President Joe Biden, much like his predecessor, wants to sell the Saudi Arabian Air Force $650 million worth of weapons. And to say that this is unethical would be an understatement, but the bigger issue is that most members of the Democratic Party have remained silent on this up until this point. Thankfully, that's beginning to change, and there's some pushback, including from Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff speaking out against this sale. Now, Ilhan Omar is also joining the fight to stop this, saying that she will be introducing legislation to block the sale and tweeting out, selling weapons to Saudi Arabia while they continue to slaughter Yemenis is unacceptable. If we truly believe in putting human rights at the center of our foreign policy, we would not be arming human rights abusers. Working on legislation to stop Stop this sale this week. So finally, we're starting to see some pushback, and Representative Tom Malinowski released a joint statement with other members, including Adam Schiff, where they state, The announced transfer of up to $650 million in advanced munitions to the Saudi Air Force is intended to serve defensive purposes and protect against further Houthi airborne attacks. But the only way to truly protect people in the region is to bring the war in Yemen to an end. The conflict has now claimed thousands of lives and remains a devastating humanitarian disaster. Now, that last paragraph is a really crucial point because the Biden administration did actually announce that they were suspending weapon sales to Saudi Arabia. But there's a catch. As Jessica Corbett of Common Dreams explains, a week after taking office in January, President Joe Biden imposed a temporary freeze on arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. In early February, Biden announced his administration would cut off U.S. support for offensive operations in the Saudi-led war on Yemen and appoint a diplomatic envoy. The Democrats said Wednesday that while the administration has suspended offensive weapon sales, it continues to provide logistical support and spare ports that permit an escalation of offensive Saudi Air Force operations in Yemen. That needs to stop. So it's really encouraging to see members of the Democratic Party, including a prominent member, push back and try to stop this sale. And it's really absurd that the Biden administration is trusting the regime that murdered a journalist out in the open and then lied about it. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that the distinction here between offensive and defensive weapons matters because one, we're supposed to take them at their word, and two, they wouldn't need defensive weapons if they weren't in Yemen in the first place. So they're supposed to be used defensively against the Houthis. But you wouldn't need to defend yourself from the Houthis if you were not in Yemen. 
So there's absolutely no reason for this. It's something that the Biden administration absolutely should stop. And I do view it as sort of a broken promise because, you know, people see these announcements. Okay, Biden is moving us in the correct direction. He's stopping offensive weapons to Saudi Arabia. But then he does something like this. Oh, well, we're selling them these weapons for defensive purposes. It's incredibly disingenuous. And it seems as if that first announcement was nothing more than virtue signaling. So if you don't actually stop selling them, weapons if you don't actually stop rewarding them for the genocide that they are carrying out in Yemen then they're not going to stop so it's really important that members of Congress such as Ilhan Omar and hopefully others speak out and condemn this and try to stop this because it's a humanitarian disaster and it's only going to get worse so long as we keep aiding and abetting the Saudis here I don't think many people have been following this story and that's really discouraging because we have a really unique opportunity and a limited time frame to actually restore net neutrality so long as Biden's FCC nominee Gigi Sohn gets confirmed. But the right is waging an all-out war against her confirmation. Lindsey Graham has publicly denounced her and said he's going to fight to stop her and do everything that he can to do just that. And also, the propaganda arm has kicked in because Fox News did a segment where they fear-mongered about Gigi Zone. And the things that they say are just downright absurd and incredibly, incredibly deceitful. President Biden's new FCC nominee is being hailed by the White House as a leading advocate for open, affordable and democratic communications networks. But is that just mm. code for media censor? Here to react, Fox News contributor Joe Concha. Joe, her name is Gigi Sohn. How petrified should every American be about her nomination? Well, let's read back Gigi Sohn's own words. This is what she just had to say in 2020. Quote, I believe that Fox News has had the most negative impact on our democracy. It's state-sponsored propaganda with few, if any, opposing viewpoints. Where's the hearing about that? Sohn also questioned Sinclair Broadcasting's, quote, fitness to be a broadcast licensee, unquote. In other words, she will go after the licenses of Fox News, of Sinclair, of anybody who disagrees with the Biden administration. Pyongyang couldn't draw it up any better. She cannot be confirmed because the FCC cannot be weaponized to squash free speech and viewpoints that the Biden administration just happens to disagree with. And it's up to moderate Democrats to ensure that does not happen. That hearing starts, I believe, about in a week or so. Uh, and we all should be paying attention to that because this could be uh, Mr. Biden's most dangerous nominee yet. Lindsey Graham agrees with you. He released a statement saying Gigi's is a complete political ideologue who has disdain for conservatives. She would be a complete nightmare for the country when it comes to regulating in public the public airwaves. I will do everything in my power to convince colleagues on both sides of the aisle to reject this extreme nominee. But in this political climate, Joe, can somebody like Senator Lindsey Graham convince the other side of the aisle to agree with him? It's very difficult, right? It, it won't take too many Democrats, though, to, to tip the scales, obviously, uh, particularly when we're talking about a 50-50 Senate. So, again, you bring up the names, Manchin, Cinema. Mm. that's about it. But you would hope that they would say, all right, this is a bridge too far, and, and we have to put a stop to this. Uh, be, because, again, uh, this is somebody in Gigi Stone, Stone who wants to stop what 
some people want to say on the airwaves, and that's not the role of the FCC. I don't think she's going to be invited to conscious yeah. Thanksgiving, regardless Twitter. of white meat. It's always or, Twitter uh, with these nominees that get them in trouble. So that was ridiculous, but I've got to say that from a propaganda standpoint, that was actually surprisingly clever because if they just say, look, this FCC nomination wants to restore net neutrality, that's a losing argument because even conservatives support net neutrality. So they don't want to have that battle. So what they do want to do is bring this battle on a field where they feel a little bit more comfortable and try to bring in the culture war. Well, she's a far leftist, you know, she's in favor of censorship and she's a censorian, basically trying to tie her to SJWs. And it's actually something that will convince a lot of Americans, given that they don't really know who Gigi Sona is and they don't even know what's going on currently with regard to the FCC process. So, you know, if they explain it in a way that is not disingenuous, then they're going to lose that argument. So what do they do? They fearmonger and they take that hyperbole to the next level. So she was compared to uh, North Korea. That's the kind of policies that she wants to enact as a commissioner on the FCC. It's like Pyongyang, except you don't have that much power as FCC commissioner. And even if she got what she wanted, which is to restore net neutrality, we'd just be going back to the Obama era rules, which is what everyone wants, what we support. So it's funny how they have to be so bombastic. You know, they describe what she said and they ask, oh, well, is this just code for media censor? And then the Fox host asks, how petrified should every American be about her nomination? So they, they don't really say anything specific there. There's a lot of innuendo and implications about what she would do. But what she's saying with regard to Sinclair Broadcasting, for example, her comments are true. But in terms of regulation, she's not going to revoke the broadcasting license from Fox News. So they want to paint her as the censorian who's going to crack down on freedom of speech. But that's not actually the case. What she's referring to... And if you look at her regulatory history, she is in favor of actual competition in the market, which in theory is what these capitalists should support, but they're not going to tell you that. So if a media company is too big, GG Sone would probably support regulating them more or breaking them up if need be. So this is from 2018. This is with regard to Sinclair Broadcasting, and this was the market share that they held, about 40% of households. So in the event they merged with Tribune, then this is the amount that their market share would grow from 40% to 72%. So when Gigi Sohn targets companies like Sinclair, this is what she's referring to. She wants to actually make it so that way the market is more free and there's not all of these monopolies. That's one of the biggest issues with the internet in the United States. It's very monopolistic. You usually have only one or two internet service providers if you're lucky. Comcast, AT&T, Verizon, sometimes CenturyLink, sometimes other companies. But that's what she's referring to. But they're not going to tell you that. Instead, they're going to imply that, well, she wants to crack down on anyone who she disagrees with. It's preposterous and it's especially stupid considering that Ajit Pai took a similar stance to what Gigi Sohn is saying. Now back when Ajit Pai was overseeing the failed merger of Sinclair and Tribune, it was very obvious that he was acting on their behalf from the inside and there was even an investigation by Watchdog over whether or not he did act improperly and they concluded that he did not but still after all of that he ended up sinking the Sinclair Tribune merger. Why? 
I think it was because he got a little bit too close there. There was a little bit too much heat, so he just couldn't approve it without getting some sort of a penalty or fine for corruption. I don't know. That's all speculation. It doesn't really matter, though, because what this was in refer uh, reference to is um, monopolies. So <laughs> they're trying to take her words and twist it. They don't want to talk about her rightful critiques of these major media conglomerates she you know she's calling out monopolies but they're saying mm, is she though is that just a code for media censor and multiple times you see them broadcast the signal to joe manchin and kirsten cinema we really hope that they tank this that's not what they said but in particular uh concha said she cannot be confirmed because the fcc can't be weaponized by the biden administration to squash free speech they happen to disagree with and it's up to moderate democrats to ensure that that does not happen and says this could be biden's most dangerous nominee yet so they want you to believe this is about freedom of speech and, you know, in a roundabout way, it is because freedom of speech means you have a free and open internet, which is what she wants through net neutrality. But instead, they want to make it seem like, oh, well, she's going to go after conservatives. So they could tie this to the culture war and this, you know, conservative persecution complex about how conservatives are always targeted on Facebook and Twitter. They can actually gin up support from conservatives on this issue when last time conservatives were not in support of repealing net neutrality so that's their playbook they're trying to tank this confirmation by making it seem as if gg zone is essentially for lack of a better word an sjw don't fall for it gg zone supports net neutrality and that's what she wants to do and maybe she will go after monopolies but that's a good thing because in a free market which they supposedly support mind you you want competition you want to encourage competition you want to regulate these companies in a way that facilitates competition otherwise it's worse for all of us we have less freedom in the end but instead they're saying no she's the one who's actually against freedom and she hates freedom of speech not true it's nonsensical i encourage lefties to pay attention to this issue because the right is already mobilized against her again lindsey graham is fighting her so if we let them have this battle and we don't push back at all they win and we don't get net neutrality restored and we only have a limited window of opportunity to restore net neutrality so if we lose this uh chance then that's really sad but um this is someone who is on our side this is someone who actually would take it further and support municipal public broadband so the issue of net neutrality would be settled permanently so we have to support gg zone and anything that we can do to rally around her even if it's just defending her and pushing back on social media against these lies i think that's important and i would encourage you to do that hi folks i'm here with jason call running in the second congressional district in washington state and he is back to talk about his campaign he's running once again for congress jason welcome to the program thanks so much for uh, having me on the show mike it's uh, really great to be back Always glad to talk to you. I've got to ask. So I've been asking this question to everyone who cho chose to run for Congress twice. What made you want to do it? Because I would never want to run once, let alone twice. So this is a lot of work. It's probably exhausting. What made you do it? Uh, well, first of all, it is exhausting. I have almost no free time and I get almost no sleep. I've got teenagers. I work full time. Um, and then I'm trying to do and, and I'm also, you know, involved in a number of activist issues still because that's just my, you know, history over the last 30 years and now running a campaign again. But, you know, there's a few reasons. I would say first we did 
really well the first time around. We got almost 35,000 votes uh, for what was essentially a no-name campaign. Uh, we raised about $53,000 total, um, and we got, you know, I, I, I want to say, you know, without having actually crunched the numbers, we, we got more bang for our buck in terms of votes than almost any other progressive uh, in the primary uh, running in 2020. Um, the, you know, Washington is a top two primary state. Uh, I think California, Washington, and maybe Louisiana, the only states that do this top two primary, which means, you know, I can be on the ballot next to the incumbent. So in all of the states that have a separate Democrat and Republican primary, you're going to end up with the top Democrat against the top Republican. And Democrats uh, will typically say in those situations, well, we want to keep the incumbent because the incumbent has already proven that they can beat the Republican. But in Washington or in California, we can actually push the Republican off the ballot. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't... Uh, you know, I have enough humility and, and reality about the situation to say I'm not going to beat Rick Larson uh, in the primary. But if I get that second spot, then the voters of this district get to have a policy conversation that for 20 years they have not been allowed to have. And that's really what this is about. Um, we're, we're at the confluence of, of multiple crises in this country, economic, um, uh, uh, certainly environmental, uh, health care. And, and, you know, we've got these corporate Democrats who are, you know, just they're performative on so many issues. Um, they're they're in the tank for their corporate donors. I mean, Rick Larson is one of 53 Democrats whose majority corporate corporate uh, PAC funded. He's deep in the pockets of the military industrial complex and the fossil fuel industry. And I think the voters of this district um, have voted for him, as have I. I mean, I've voted for him in the past because he's been the Democrat on the ballot and I'm not going to vote for a Republican, you know, but it's more like a Democrat by default vote rather than you know, really feeling like I'm voting for somebody who represents my, my interests. So if we can have that policy conversation, um, you know, and force him into a debate on issues, I really think we can win this race because I think this is a progressive district. Yeah. And you have the experience now. You've been in activist circles. You've kind of tried to build up your credibility with uh, local uh, party officials and whatnot. Um, it feels like this time, is different. Like, I feel like you have a better chance this time around. And I know that you feel the same way too. explain what makes this race different and kind of what you learned uh, after running the first time. Um, well, you know, I, I, we have to, we have to make some better inroads into the local democratic party organization. I mean, I was, you know, Washington's second district is, uh, and, and I know that saying something like that is kind of anathema to a lot of the, the leftists out there, but mm -hmm. I want to talk about the reality of politics and what the electorate is like, because, you know, the, the left on social media is not the same as the electorate in your district. And I think a lot of times right. that gets confused. Um, so while I hold those values, those progressive values, I'm not going to take any corporate PAC money. You know, I'm going to stand up to Democratic Party leadership. The reality is that we do need support from Democratic Party organizations. So there are 14 local. I mean, we'll we'll know what happens with redistricting here in in another week, I think. Um, but there are 14 local uh, party Democratic Party organizations that are intersectional with um, the the second congressional district. We got five counties. We got nine legislative districts. All of those organizations endorse, and so when those endorsements come through, and we got seven out of fourteen last time around. 
Um, I think people were very surprised that one, we got as many endorsements as we did, uh, but two, that we, we ended up getting as many votes as we did. My name was at the bottom of the ballot of eight. Um, Rick Larson has 20 years of name recognition, and we still got within 1% of the primary vote for being on the ballot. So I think that these local Democratic Party organizations, even though they know I am challenging the establishment of the Democratic Party, there are enough people within those organizations that recognize that we have to do better than the status quo. And I think that's really what gives um, us a good boost now is we've had Biden in office for 10 months. And what have we seen? We've seen Democrats fighting with Democrats and not getting the policies passed that we need to get passed. And I got to tell you, the incumbent that I'm running against, although he mouths the words, I'm a progressive, I'm grassroots. The fact is his voting history is extremely conservative. We actually went through the American Conservative Union, which is the, which is the, the premier Republican slash conservative um, organization in the country. They're the people that host CPAC every year. And they have rankings of their Democrats in terms of, you know, have they voted in alignment with the way we would have wanted people to vote? Well, over his 20 year career history, Rick Larson comes out about the 36th most conservative Democrat out of what we got 230 in Congress. He's the 36th most conservative. Uh, he's like, what is that? 84th percentile, I think it worked out to in terms of his voting history alignment with the American Conservative Union. And I don't think that the voters in this district, one, they're not aware of that, but two, that's not their values. So when we're talking about voters in this district voting their values, I am far more aligned with the actual Democratic Party stated platform than the incumbent is. Yeah, I, I like that you express the importance of really building up relationships with local organizations, even the Democratic Party locally, because that is how you kind of win them over. That doesn't necessarily mean that you are sacrificing your principles. And for people who followed you over the years, uh, there's no way anyone could say that you're like some establishment sellout. You are a true fighter. And one thing that I like about you is that if you were to be elected, uh, I know that you would actually be a real fighter. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, in terms of the squad and progressives, um, can you share your thoughts on the Build Back Better slash so-called bipartisan infrastructure negotiations and what you would have done differently? Because there's a lot of people who have different thoughts about this, but I think that just like based on what I've seen collectively, leftists are disappointed with most of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, I would say, first of all, I would have been one of those uh, uh, people, the squad, and you notice that it's all the members of the squad who voted no on that. I would have been with right. them. I, I really want to, you know, this is another thing about, about left-wing social media and sort of the reality of politics, and there's been a lot of sniping at the squad, and I get it. I mean, AOC has said some things that I do not like, things that I would not say, um, and I would challenge her on those things, but in sort of a big picture way, she's one of the people who stood up and voted no on this because one, we know that conservative Democrats are not negotiating in, in, in good faith. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. So when, when we look about, uh, talk about Pramila Jayapal as leader of the Progressive Caucus, I want to be careful because, you know, I don't want to act like I'm trying to take her down a peg or not, but I'm disappointed in her leadership, you know? And, and I'm disappointed with the Progressive Caucus as a whole. There are something like 95 members of um, the Progressive Caucus. And if you look through that list, you know, there's a lot of crossover with 
the new Democrats. Well, the new Democrats are a, are a free trade co coalition, you know, and that's what I'm running against. I mean, Rick Larson is a member of the new Democrats. He's chair of the Aviation Committee and Transportation, and he's been a career member of the House Armed Services Committee, majority funded by corporate PACs, takes a ton of military industrial complex and fossil fuel industry. Now, he's claiming in his emails that he's a grassroots progressive. He's not part of the progressive PAC, but take somebody like Adam Smith, who is chair of Armed Services and who is a member of the new Democrats coalition. Why are they letting these people into the progressive caucus? It muddies the waters on what progressive means. So um, I'm glad that the six stood up to the Build Back Better. The Build Back Better is wholly insufficient to the needs of the time. The climate provisions in there alone are 7% of the military budget taken taken annually. And I don't understand how, how Pramila Jayapal can get out there and talk about the Build Back Better Act being transformative. You know, it wasn't even transformative at $3.5 trillion. It was transformative at the $10 trillion it started and maybe the $6 trillion that it, ended, it got cut down to. But once you start knocking it down to $3.5 trillion and then take it down, it's not transformative after that. And um, yeah. if you know uh, journalist Ryan Cooper, Ryan Cooper um, actually wrote a, a really good article um, about the insufficiency of the climate provisions and saying, you know, putting an insufficient amount with not a great plan towards climate is actually worse than just tanking the whole thing right now, going back to the drawing board and saying, this is what we need and this is what we're going to stand firm on. So that's my problem. I mean, we get this bill back better. I've said this for, for months now. We get this insufficient bill passed. And the next time that we go to try and get better climate provisions, we're going to have the majority conservative, uh, you know, we're going to have the Republicans and the conservative Democrats coming at us and saying, we already did climate. What are you talking about? Why are you coming back at us for more climate money? We already did climate. We already did health care. We already did infrastructure. And, and and that is the real danger of passing something that's insufficient is like, where do we go from here? Because they're not going to want to they're going to want not going to want to do any more. Yeah. Um, uh, on that note, I wanted to ask you basically about something that you would have crucial insight into. This might be an online left thing. But one thing that has concerned me is um, kind of this disillusionment with electoralism among the left for good reason. I mean, we had India Walton lose, Nina Turner lose, and then I see a lot of dissatisfaction with the way that the squad, not necessarily the squad, but the Progressive Caucus, more broadly speaking, handled Build Back Better. Uh, and one thing that has concerned me is that this is going to suppress, you know, support for new leftists running for Congress, such as yourself. Now, I think that probably that's mostly online and people in your district don't follow this as closely and you can kind of cue me in on that but at the same time i haven't really seen that on my channel every week i'll talk to a new progressive running for congress and there's been a lot of enthusiasm and i didn't think that that would be the case maybe more enthusiasm than in 2020 um so what are you seeing like are are people feeling dissatisfied or is this kind of just in our own online you know echo chamber talk me through I, this i i think um you know, yeah, again, what happens online and what happens in, in, in the reality of the elect electorate are not always the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that there is more lack of enthusiasm for electoralism online than there is in the general public. But I mean, let's face it. I mean, voter turnout was in the in the midterms was abysmal. Um, yeah. I actually went out to uh, Cleveland for 10 days to help with Nina Turner's campaign. The last 10 days of her race, I was on the ground there knocking doors in Cleveland for her. 
And in the end, they had something like 16, 17% turnout in this special election. Uh, that's that's abysmal. I mean, if you, if you think about it, Nina Turner got about the same number of votes as I did in my first run. Well, I had 13% of the electorate. She was almost 45% of the electorate with with her votes. I mean, just as a comparison of turnout in the Cleveland area uh, compared to here in Washington. But in this last election, just the the midterms, the the, the what is it? The off the off season, right? The, 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 right. Between between the congressional and the presidential, right? You've got your off. We had, you know, like 25 percent turnout. That's just generally bad. I think yeah. it will be better in 2022. Um, but but I, I do I do worry that a lot of the people who I need for my uh, for my success, that is young people, you know, people who are who are in the 18 to 29 range where my policies are going to be the ones that are working best for their future. Um, I need to convince them that I'm worth paying attention to and that I'm worth showing up for. If I can get that segment, which only voted from what I can tell in terms of eligible voters ver versus who actually voted. I mean, it was under 10% of that age group actually voted in uh -huh. the most recent November elections. I've got to increase that turnout. Now, the 65 and over, they vote better than 50% every time. Um, and so it's, it's a conundrum where you say, you know, we could win this thing if we had the turnout you know, from the younger populations um, and then trying to trying to sort of play that off with, well, we keep showing up for these people and then they don't turn around and show up for us. And so I think that's what we're going back to. Like if the progressives aren't fighting as hard for us as we have elected them to do, what is the point of showing up? And so where I think we are right now is I think the people who are running in 2022 as a, and ran last year in 2020, as opposed to the vote to the ones who got elected in 2018, the current squad, I think we're coming in with sort of a different recognition of how hard we need to fight when we actually get to Congress. So people ask me about the whole force the vote issue. One, I didn't think force the vote was great strategy. Um, I, I, I think it was kind of cobbled together very quickly and then blew up into this online thing of you've got to do this. I was like, I don't see any of the squad uh, voting against Nancy Pelosi right now. But if you want to know where I would be on that issue, I wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi just on principle, you know? Yeah. And I think that's what people are looking for. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's there's a lot that needs to be fixed right now. I mean, we, we know the policies. I think that all of my viewers, uh, they're familiar with you enough to know that you have a great platform. But what I wanted to talk about is the barriers that are stopping us from actually getting what we need um, accomplished. And this this is really big picture. It's it's difficult. But I mean, out of all the things, I think we need institutional reform. You know, I would stack the Supreme Court, abolish the Senate or turn it into some ceremonial institution. Um, we yep. need electoral reform. I think that first past the post, you know, winner take all this this two party system is absolutely not helping us get adequate representation. I think we need campaign finance reform because basically what it comes down to is if you have more money, most times you're going to win. What would be the main thing that you focus on if you had to prioritize one of these really broad institutional changes? Because I think that all of them are needed, but I just don't know which one to focus on first. I kind of yeah, lean towards I, campaign I, finance, but. 
It, it is. And I've, I've said this a long time when people say, what are my top three issues? OK, so Medicare for all and the Green New Deal, those are top issues. But when my third issue and it's really the all encompassing issue is campaign finance reform, yeah. um, we have got to get corporate money out of politics. Um, my the incumbent I'm running against raises a million dollars, you know, and he doesn't he doesn't even have to call these these, you know, he doesn't even have to call Boeing up. Boeing, Amazon, you know, Lockheed Martin, they're going to be dropping money in his coffers because they know they're going to get something for it in return. I'm yeah. not seeking out corporate PAC money, um, you know, and they wouldn't donate to me anyway because they know that I'm highly oppositional to corporate control of our government. But that really is the issue. Uh, we have these, these um, you know, we've got Citizens United. Uh, that is a tough nut to crack. Uh, but expanding the Supreme Court, stacking the Supreme Court would would immediately uh, we'd be able to one secure um, you know any assaults on Roe versus Wade, but we'd also be able to overturn Citizens United. So the dark money is an issue, and it's interesting because the Democrats, even the my opponent, uh, talks about how terrible Citizens United is, but he benefits hugely from it. You know, yep. I mean that's that's just a reality. So again, it's mouthing the words without actually. Um, really being invested in changing that policy. Uh, but campaign finance reform, we have not seen a campaign finance reform bill since uh, since McCain-Feingold back in 1992, I think it was, 30 years without anybody bringing anything about campaign finance reform to the table. And I think that that's something that the Progressive Caucus should be doing. And even if it won't pass, and this is the same for anything, this is the same for Medicare for all, even if it won't pass, you keep bringing it to the table and you keep focusing attention on it, you know, because I think this country, Republican, Democrat alike, the rank and file voters know we've got a ton of corruption in Washington, D.C. The easiest way to get rid of it is just to ban those corporate PAC contributions outright. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's important. And I feel like unless we get campaign finance reform and get money out of politics, you're not really going to have an easy time passing anything. I mean, we're seeing it in action right now, trying to push through that with Build Back Better. And it's just being gutted. Um, at the time that I'm filming this, there's a Newsweek article uh, about how Manchin is uh, considering not voting for Build Back Better, shocker, uh, because of inflation. When we know that that's not the case, we know that he is taking money from the fossil fuel industry. Kirsten Sinema saying things. She was against, you know, the pharmaceutical uh, negotiation provision in Build Back Better. And it's because she's being bankrolled by big pharma. So I feel like unless you really change the system itself you're not going to get meaningful legislation you'll kind of see nibbling around the edges from time to time but these things can be e easily undone with the new administration via executive order and it, it's just it's really frustrating um well, so it's and, nice and, go ahead well i was gonna say mansion and mansion and cinema are kind of like the poster children for this corporate corruption but mm -hmm. what, what i think what a lot of rank and file democrats don't understand is they are providing cover for your shitty rep <laughs> You know, exactly. Um, yeah. My, my Washington state senators, Patty Murray and Maria Cantwell, are both deep in the pot. I mean, Patty Murray's taken a million dollars from pharma over her career. They both voted in 2017, along with Cory Booker and, you know, a, a dozen other de Senate Democrats to ban the reimportation of drugs from Canada. This was yep. where Bernie was saying, I can take my people up to Canada and we can go get cheap drugs right across the border. Why is it that we can't have it coming the other way? Well, we've got Democrats. It's not just mansion and cinema you know we we've got an identified cadre of really conservative democrats like you know tom carper and chris coons in delaware uh maggie maggie hussein in new hampshire um 
But uh, where is that? Who's that, Maggie? You saying Jeannie Sheehan? Anyway, they're what, they're all they're the same. Identified, <laughs> they're identified as being conservative, but if you look at the Senate, how many actual progressive champions do we have in the Senate at all? We've got Bernie Sanders. We occasionally have Elizabeth Warren, depending upon what the issue is, and we've got nobody else, right? So we've got we've got forty eight Democrats who. I don't think we can count on it all, but Manchin and Cinema are providing cover for a lot of them. And I think that's what Democrat, you know, the Democratic rank and file need to wake up for up to. And it's the same thing. They're they're providing cover for Democrats in the House. So the Democrats in the House can vote for Build Back Better and they can say, yeah, we're pushing Biden's agenda, knowing that Manchin and Cinema are going to tank it in the Senate. So, you know, mm-hmm. you know that I, I mean, that's why it's important, like even the six that we have in the squad and we need to expand that they've got to be voting against these bills and then going to the public and explaining exactly why they voted against them. And I think that's a problem yeah. with progressives. They don't talk to the public enough about why they're making the votes that they're making. Yeah. Uh, and you're kind of touching on a really important thing that I've been thinking about a lot lately, and that is marketing. I think that as right as we are on the policies, because we have facts and data on our side, we're not good at convincing people of that. And maybe it's because, you know, the left doesn't have big money to get that message out more effectively. Uh, we've been successful at Medicare for All. I've, I've convinced many people in my personal life to support Medicare for All. But overall, I think that if I can make a constructive critique of the left, it's that we suck at marketing. We don't know how to sell our message. And that's something that extends to Democrats as well. Uh, what do you think we're like, what's a constructive criticism of the left overall that you would make that you think we should really be more introspective about and possibly change areas of opportunity if we want to be polite? Now, when you say the left, are we talking about the online activist left? Or are we talking about the pro- progressives in Congress left? Uh, I brought in that out. I'd say all of the left. Um Overall, like if there's this underlying issue that the progressive in Congress uh, deal with and the online left uh, grassroots activists, if there's one thing that kind of we're all weak at specifically, what do you think that is? Because I do think marketing is probably the answer that I'd go with. I, I would I would say the other thing, the other thing and marketing is terrible and Democrats are terrible at messaging in general. They always have been. Um, but I would say for the people who are left of the Democratic Party, um, I, I would say, you know, as anathema as this might be, because a lot of people want to push for third parties. Uh, we are not in a third party system uh, and mm-hmm. we won't be until we get changes in our voting uh, and yes. we get ranked choice voting um, and and people can vote sort of outside of this fear voting where like, oh, I want to make sure I'm voting for the Democrat who's going to beat the Republican rather than, you know, let's let's vote for the one that we all really want to support. Um, I, I would say to get involved in your local Democratic Party. Um, I, I ran a push uh, and I, it's, it's horrible for me. I feel badly saying that because I know uh, what a shit show the Democratic Party is yeah. because I've engaged with the Democratic Party for the last 30 years. But the reason the left does not get any traction within the Democratic Party is because people are like, I'm just not going to engage with them. They're they're mm-hmm. terrible. They're corrupt. So I can hold two thoughts in my head at once. Yes, the Democratic Party is terrible. It's corrupt. Yes, if enough of us get in there who, who are willing to fight the system, we could actually take it over and we can make a difference in terms of endorsing progressive candidates and making sure that we're, we're raising money for those progressive candidates. 
we have in Washington a very progressive platform at the state level, and I know because I helped write it when I was a member of the Washington State Democrats Central Committee, right? But we cannot get progressive candidates elected unless we're willing to have those people on the ground in their districts within the Democratic Party, you know, voting for those endorsements, making sure that people are getting elected to the to the state committee who are progressive, making sure that the state party itself is you know, has a progressive chair and a progressive executive board. All of those things are within reach. If the people who are just like, no, no, get away would say, okay, I'm going to give this a try. It's going to take sustained effort, right? Are you willing to commit to this to two years, four years, six years, six years, and see how it plays out? That would be the thing. That would be my message. You know, hate the democratic party, Get involved with the Democratic Party uh, and, and because that's what's on the table. That's re the reality of what is on the table right now. Jill Stein pulled 0.7% in 2016, and I don't even remember what the numbers were for um, the Green Party in, two, in, in 2020. I don't think it was even that. So this mm -hmm. idea that we can push third party right now with our voting constraints, I just don't think it's realistic. But I can go to every state and look at their sort of platform, their rules, regulations, and bylaws, and I can say, here's how it can happen. I mean, in Washington State, it would be hugely easy. It's just a matter of getting the bodies to do it. Yeah, I think it's really important that you say that, because when we think about taking over the Democratic Party, people think about how difficult that is nationally with, you know, the National Democratic Party. But um, at the state level, at the local level, it is different. You can make a difference. Um, I'm hearing an echo. I'm not sure if you can hear that, too. I'll just I'll just push through. Basically, what I wanted to say is that, like, I hate the Democratic Party and I don't like the two party system. Um, and that's why I've been pushing for years to have people try to support H.R. 4000, um, which is a bill that would actually move us towards proportional representation. And for me, you know, like I was a supporter of Jill Stein in 2016. And it was because I thought that, you know, if we have this opportunity right now with Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump and I live in a safe blue state, there's nothing, you know, to there's there's no risk in trying to get the Greens to 5 percent to see if they could get federal funding funding. But it's, the reality is that people just are not going to go for that. So we can't just by sheer force of will get a third party to a viable state. Uh, we have to get electoral reform first. And that's what I really want progressives and leftists to acknowledge. So I'm glad that you said that because, you know, you can you can try to take over your own state's Democratic Party and enact electoral reform in your state to make third parties viable, to change the system. But it's tough and yep. it's a really com complex and complicated endeavor. I studied electoral institutions in grad school. And even if you change the system and you think it's going to yield multiple parties, sometimes it doesn't. There are examples of this in, in Japan, for example. Uh, but, you know, I, I think well, that just... I, I mean, look Look at what happened in in the main Senate race. I mean, how many millions of dollars did did the Democratic Party uh, dump into Sarah Gideon's race? So even though Maine had uh, ranked choice voting, we still could not overcome the sheer volume of corporate money that Democrats threw at Sarah Gideon. Um, yep. And, you know, what did Betsy Sweet get? She got I mean, it was less than 10 percent. I mean. You know, so mm -hmm. so it's it's ranked choice voting in conjunction with getting rid of corporate money in in conjunction with, uh, you know, pulling the Democratic Party to to be a more progressive part uh, party. But, you know, 
I I would say that for somebody like myself, if I were to get elected, or I should say when I get elected, you know, it will be a goal of mine to make it easy, <laughs> easier for third parties to establish themselves. I'm, you yeah. know, I grew up in, in England um, and I and I am used to, you know, I grew up being used to, you know, multi-party representation as they have through most of Europe, where people feel like they can vote for somebody that, that actually represents them and then you have to do some coalition building to get to get um to get um any let any real legislation passed but what we have here in the united states with two corporate owned parties is anytime you get something that's bipartisan the only reason it's bipartisan is because the corporations that are backing both parties are agreeing on it so bipartisan in america is a dirty word in my opinion because yeah. it means it means the general public is getting screwed and our system right now is so fundamentally broken that I feel like even if uh, we somehow got a third or a fourth party, that would just be corrupted by capitalism as well. We saw what big money did to the Democratic Party, which was once you know a party of the working people. So I feel like what right. you're saying here, this message of getting involved is really important because even if you kind of feel hopeless, which I think a lot of people feel right now, getting involved locally, it really does make a meaningful difference um, in your in your life. Um, so uh, you know, I feel like most of my viewers are already on board. So now I want you to tell us how do we help you get elected because we need you in Congress desperately. Uh, do you need uh, phone bankers do you need canvassers donations tell us what you need because we need you right now right now i need money i mean okay. progressive fundraising is is terrible uh and and most of the time that i that i spend on my campaign right now is calling phone lists uh, of people who are you know maybe progressive and maybe have donated in the past you know we've got these you know phone lists that are that all the candidates have them and basically we're out there trying to sell our message for people who we think might give us some money and sometimes it works but most of the time i'm leaving voice messages and 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 so so fundraising is is really a struggle but you know i need staff uh i need printed materials um i i've got a guy i mean i'm hoping to raise two thousand dollars like in the next week or so so that i can hire a guy because one of the one of the things with progressive campaigns is uh unless we are fundraising we can't pay staff um and i don't want as a, as a labor guy and as a union guy i don't want people working for me for free you know so we're running on it we're running on a skeleton crew right now because we can't afford to pay more people but everything honestly everything starts with money and i'm not talking about the million dollars that rick larson has taken in you know, I'm talking like, can we get to a couple hundred thousand dollars? Um, if we can get to a couple hundred, three hundred thousand dollars in fundraising, I'll be able to pay the people to do the work for me, to pay the materials, to keep our tech going. Uh, like I said, I got two thousand dollars I want to raise in the next week or so so that I can hire a guy who's going to do some Facebook ads for me, some targeted Facebook ads for me. But that but, but I'm not going to ask him to do the work and then say, oh, I can't pay you on the back end or whatever. So, I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to. It's going to be fundraising, 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 you know, and we're not until we can do that we can't really get out on the streets and hit the district um and i'm hoping we can do that by january but you know i hate to say it man money 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 yeah yeah i mean uh, i don't think it's a surprise to any of my viewers you know it's yeah. nine times out of ten if you have money you win you know if you if you raise more money than your opponent you end up winning so absolutely i i don't think that that's shocking at all well jason thank you so much running in washington's second congressional district we absolutely. are absolutely rooting for you and of course we'll be in touch i'm sure 
callforcongress.com and all my socials are call for congress for not the number four mike it's been a pleasure talking with you again um and uh hopefully we we end up with some good news when the primary rolls around in august um one of the things that i wanted to say just as a just as a quick wrap up here is i personally i'm donating five dollars a month to 10 different candidates they're all progressive candidates and if every progressive could just take 50 bucks Spread it out between 10 people. You know, we're all running on shoestring budgets right now. Um, so, you know, that's that's one way to approach the fundraising game is is pick your 10 favorites. Give them five bucks a month. You know, honestly, if every if everybody who was following me on Twitter uh, was willing to do that, progressive candidates would be funding would be funded. I like that. That's a really great idea, actually. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it, Jason. All right. Take care, Mike. Want more? Visit humanistreport.com for links to our full catalog of videos on YouTube, Means TV, and Facebook. You can also find audio versions of the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms. And before you go, consider supporting the show on Patreon or through YouTube memberships. You'll get early access to most videos, invites to monthly live chats with Mike, and you'll be thanked by name at the start of the next episode. There are other ways to support the show. You can like, subscribe, turn on notifications, and share our content on social media. Thank you for watching.